from your friendly people here at the Watchtower Podcast. We'd just like to tell everybody currently, especially in El Paso, if you're listening in or if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, uh, stay safe. We have they have just announced today, as in October, as of October 25th, that, that we're currently on a two-week um, curfew. And they're asking people to just stay home at the very least for the next two weeks. Please, guys, stay safe. Hospitals are capacity. This is a serious thing. Wear your masks if you got to go out. We, your tower family, care for you guys. So just stay safe and uh, protect your lo- your loved ones around you, man. That's what it's all about. So we just want to put that out there. Yeah, just please don't take it as a joke. If not for yourself, for others. Just please be safe and wear a mask. Don't be that asshole. Yeah. Cool. All right. And back Grab to the cookie show. And just wait till all this blows over. And welcome back to the Watchtower Podcast, the new podcast Woo! brought to you by the new <laughs> Tower Cast Network, Tower Cast Podcast Network from Tower Productions. Um, this is pretty much your... Uh, book club for films. That's the way I like to think of it, right? So yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a book club, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, no girls, unless you're like me that actually <laughs> like to watch films at home with subtitles. In which case, you are still reading. But um, yeah, I'm the weird guy who it's likes me. the subtitles. So nah, no, the nerd. Yeah, I think we all <laughs> do. A movie like this. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, so mermaids. <laughs> so mermaids. <laughs> so today. We That's what talking I'd like to... the tagline to be for this episode. So, so mermaids. 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 Are you attracted to them? No, before we get into one? this very special episode, <laughs> I'd like to introduce uh, my co-host, John Eric Castro. Yay, mi beauty. <laughs> uh, my other co-host, Christian Yokomoto Medina. Why, hello, fellows and fellas. And hey. we have our uh, trusty producer, Austin Young, making sure we're sounding good in the background there. One or two. One. And uh, last but not least, we have the director of the show, director of the podcast. Not only this podcast, but our Towercast podcast as well, Mr. Michael Galao. Ahoy, oh, Hardies. There we go. Ahoy. Ahoy, ahoy, ahoy. 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 You have to disagree with your mug. This is not a happy place. You know, like, <laughs> I can't change what it says, okay? This especially, is my Especially this episode and this film. It's not <laughs> a <know>. happy place. <laughs> uh, for those of you who heard the uh, lovely intro that we're going to be adding on to the next few episodes, um, yeah, what, a, what an ironic mug to bring out. Like, this is my happy place and the <laughs> yeah. hospitals are at capacity, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's no not I'm a joke. Kidding. But <laughs> thank you. See, today we're going to be talking about. Um, a, a very happy film uh, brought to you by Disney, and um, <laughs> um, this is. Um, oh, you saw that movie? Yeah, I saw that. That's a wholly different. One. I, weren't we watching The Little Mermaid? I just watched uh, Donald Duck get like beaten right now. So if you're talking about that film, <laughs> and yeah, where were we watching? The Green Goblin got what he deserved. Anyways, um, we're With talking Batman. about the Laos pick. Actually, the Laos pick. Uh, Robert Eager's 2019 psychological horror film um the lighthouse starring willem dafoe and robert pattinson brought to you by the great minds at a24 uh a24 is doing crazy things man not, not only for horror films especially for horror films yeah, but but uh but i, I, I think they're doing some great stuff all over man they're they're bringing in a whole new like horror renaissance yeah in the art scene and, and i think we're I think we talked about that last episode, if I'm not mistaken, that A24, the work that A24 and Blumhouse, uh, 
mm-hmm. as just they're they're doing some crazy stuff right now. I mean, I mean, A twenty four. We all if you're if you're an in, if you're an indie film guy, you knew of A twenty four way back when as just the indie guys that yeah. were doing obscure B horror films. Um, I mean, yeah, all, all the way changed out to twenty fourteen. But I mean, it, 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 I th- I kind of feel like it started changing with like. With the witch, actually, like with around the them, witch, like those yeah, series of movies. No, there, there were some. There was a film that came out before that that I, I'm. St- it's still on my bucket list. It's uh, I mean, called the killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, yeah, like, killing of a sacred. Oh, with uh, Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they did some crazy things. Like they even did Kevin Smith's Tusk, which, like I said, just obscure B horse, crazy, wacky stuff. They did Tusk, and they also did um, Ex Machina, which obviously got a big, big reception. Yes. Um. So they they've been doing some stuff since like 2013, 2014. But yeah, you're right. The Witch was definitely one of the ones to mention. Um, Room was no- a notable mention too with Brie Larson. Uh, mm-hmm. She played like a kidnapping victim. Uh, that was a pretty pretty good film, and and I think she got nominated for an Oscar for that film. However, um, they did something really good with. Uh, by the way, speaking of Colin Farrell, um, I I try to give the Lobster a shot. I need to give it another shot. I couldn't get past the first act. I don't know, man. Me too. It's a good concept, but I couldn't get past the first act. What was the concept? Where he's trying to find a date, right? No. Well, essentially, the concept is that there's this this center where if you don't find quote unquote the love of your life, if you don't find somebody that that you connect with within a certain amount of time, they turn you into an animal of your choice. Get the fuck out of here. And it's called what the lobster the because his character, his animal of his choice was like, I want to get turned into a lobster. <laughs> so because it's. it's- because he has it has the sexual maturity like for a long yeah. ass time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Andy. it's it's like people who don't find their loved ones, they go to the center and basically that. But it's like a mandated law. Like if you don't find somebody past like thirty or thirty five or something like that, they put you Man, into the center. It's the a pressure. it's a crazy thing. It's a weird thing. But anyways, uh, the minds at eight twenty four brought us the lighthouse. Um, you know what? If you're if you're like me and you start paying attention to Oscar buzz early, um, you start hearing the name of this film in twenty nineteen. And early 2019, that's what was happening. We started getting a lot of buzz, started getting a lot of buzz for both actors, um, both Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And you even started getting some buzz for Robert Eagers. Um, and then nothing happened. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't <laughs> this like also getting like some type of Oscar buzz? Oh, or am I thinking of a different film? That's what I it just was said. getting uh, best cinematography buzz. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that and actors. But uh, sadly, it, it didn't. It, it was, not even Willem Dafoe got nominated. No, I got I got cinematography a nomination, and that's it. <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously, with with Independent Spirit Awards and and um, British Academy Film Awards, it got other other stuff. But um, it went to Cannes, and it it won um, the director's Fortnite prize at Cannes, which is a big deal. Um, it's the director award basically at Cannes. So um, I think that's. That uh, I I I think Oscar from uh, from Movies Mayhem, so fellow friend of of the Watchtower podcast, he's going to be listening in, shout and out. he was a big big yeah shout out to Oscar and all the guys at, at Movies Mayhem. So he was a big advocate for this movie early on, and I remember he was pissed when when the actors didn't get nominations. He was pissed, like I mean, he was like on Facebook ranting about it, um, deservedly so, like that. This this movie transcends like all type of acting, especially for last year. It was definitely you know, both definitely. on both with both of them. Yeah, I think yeah. on the fellow takes it, man. Towards yeah. the end, that freaking laugh. That here's, a, here's <laughs> the thing, though. Here's the There's thing, though. It, Pattinson's like in the first act was, in my opinion, very very bland, very weak. But there's a and reason. Then, 
And then the second act, towards the end of the second act, he starts picking up the, the acting, the, the performance. Oh, yeah. And I get that it's it's the trajectory of the character going mad, and I get yeah. that. But but at the same time, um, I just feel like performance wise, I was I guess uh, when you see like film like good, when, when you see like Good Times and you see Robert Pattinson in that, and and yeah. it's it's wired the entire film, and he's wired the entire film. I guess I was just expecting like right away, right? But I mean, obviously, then again, it's at, at a the, different animal. Yeah, at the beginning, he w- he was basically kind of like. Uh, just wanted to shut up. He he just wanted to keep it to himself. That's true. Uh, it was subtlety. Yeah. Especially uh, when you, after seeing the film and then uh, knowing, you know, I guess kind of like his, a little bit of his backstory or what he kind yeah. of like yeah. gives you that insight and then rewatching it. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. see a lot of that kind of internal battle going on where then it it's doesn't true. seem like he's just kind of going and being there and, and yeah. being all energetic to work there because yeah. he's coming with all that baggage, you know. Well, that's I got to ask. Oh, my bad. No, no, I was just saying that's true. It's something that makes you think because clearly he's hiding something. Yeah. And, but he's trying not to be too obvious about it. And I think that's pretty interesting. What were you going to say, Castro? No, uh, fuck. I, I forgot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only on the Watchtower podcast. <laughs> Only on the Watchtower podcast. Now, um, you know what? Okay. I, I, I want to get into this film. I think there's a lot to dig into. Um, Gotta go first so impressions on every front. On every front, this was my first time watching this film. So, so uh, like my my yeah, literally, literally. <laughs> uh, first impression. I you know what? It's weird. I didn't want to watch it at night because I know Robert Eagers. I know Robert Eagers. <laughs> <Best laughs> you know, fuck no, I'm not gonna watch it at night. Uh, uh, no, it was a trip you're... watching it like for the first time at night. I, I remember, okay. like I can. I'll let you go on your first experience, and then I'll, I'll kind of reel it back into mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my first impression was a couple of things. Right off the bat, at, on the directing front, um, I thought it was an interesting choice to have the 4-3 aspect ratio that it did. Um, oh. I thought I thought that was right right off the bat, an interesting choice. Yeah. And, 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 a, and a very I, – I wouldn't say it put me off. It just – it makes me wonder whenever somebody does that, it has to be for a very, very specific exactly. reason. And, uh, just a quick note on that. It's a 1.19 by one mm. ratio. And it was okay. meant to mimic the 1890s like film, uh, like I guess kind of aspect ratio. So definitely, I, I think that. it definitely was trying to just kind of shove it in your head as far as like it feeling very classic. It feeling very vintage. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go even a step further. Um, if you know me, you like you uh, on the directing front, Austin knows this more than anybody. I like to shoot and in post, work on the two, three, five, one aspect ratio. I, I like widescreen. I like to shoot wide. And um, I, I, it's, it's within read for me. It's just a more cinematic feel that, that one nineteen one aspect ratio. Um, I'll take it a step further. I think eagers took an active choice as a director to think I want it to feel smaller and, and claustrophobic. Strain. Yeah, you know, it's it's in the and, it's in the actual script. Uh, this has to if you look in the script, it okay. says it has to be filmed on thirty five millimeter with a one point nineteen by one aspect ratio. It's very that. deliberate, very yeah, yeah. very conscious. Uh, I will if, say this: yeah. I I feel like if he was going to take that approach, and it, he did a very good job, I'm not going to say he didn't. Um, I feel like I missed some film grain. If he shot on celluloid, I would have wanted to see more film grain. I feel like that would have added to, to what I'll he was going for. I did okay. research. So perfect, yeah. perfect, perfect. Yeah, I mean, you're going to fill us in on the cinematography front. But yeah. as a director, I'm just thinking, man, I feel like I would have wanted... If, I, if I'm going that route, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go halfway. I'm going to go, you know, full yeah. uh, throttle into that aspect. But I'm sure there's a reason. However, my first impression, obviously, that's the first thing I, I noticed. 
you know what I love about this film is two things. Number one, it didn't try to be something else. The marketing was on on you know, no, no, no. It, it was on spot on. It was on point. Yeah, yeah. The marketing was spot on. It was exactly what the poster, what the the trailers, the the, the teasers are trying to portray. Which I think I I love it when a film can do that because most people are trying to be clever nowadays, and they're trying to show you something on the trailer, and then there's some big twist in the film yeah. that change it. And and it's not trying to do that. I thought that was interesting about. It. So the, the the marketing was spot on. Um. And the the other thing that I really loved about the film was, um, among a lot of other things, was the fact that um, it's when you hear it, when you read books, when you read Moby Dick, when you read, you know, old tales, old uh, on, on the fisherman street, tales, fisherman yes. tales. Exactly. Uh, this is exactly what you picture in your head. And I thought that was perfect. I thought the fisherman tale is finally depicted in a way that is real number one it's not meant for children number two yeah. and it's um i i hadn't seen something like this uh i've seen i think the style is very much in the art house picture style and it tried <laughs> i know it was going for that and i uh, not experimental there's a difference between experimental and, yeah. and art house and it was it was definitely art house and this definitely was an art house picture in in running through its veins the art house formula um which i think was very interesting uh so yeah my my first impressions were that all the quote unquote what the fuck moments that people uh, i i had heard about that i had heard about weren't as dramatic uh, as dramatic for me so i thought i was yeah. like all right people are just full of shit because <laughs> i i thought it was great and i didn't all these wow factor moments were like oh no that that's great that's good film it that's good fits, storytelling uh, yeah it's good storytelling so those were my first impressions what did you guys think and uh i know uh castro yeah uh, this is also your first time watching it right oh yeah oh what do you think well the first thing that stood out was the sea sailors dialect dude it said uh, it puts you in the yeah, set, yeah, dude, yeah. like the 1800s. Yeah. Dude, I and you can't escape too. it, right? Just exactly. William Defoe's like... Yeah, you can barely understand him, but it's yeah. beautiful how he uses the errs and the eyes at the end of the sentence. Yeah. It's kind of like old school. And, and the, the contrast between between Defoe's character and Panton's character. Defoe's character was truly using that, yeah. you know, as... That's why he was taking Pant, the kid right. for performance at first. And was, and Panton's character was... I mean, he's not a seaman. He's not... He wasn't, you know... So the that, logger. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 oh, okay, no. Never mind. Do you, no, do, you go ahead. The, do you find the connection in the log? You know how his old boss died when he was like logging or something? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. he finds out that this guy is putting like criticisms on his log. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I'm reaching. But it could be. Not Cap- you can. Captain's Log 2013. No, I mean, yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. No, yeah, man. I was looking for like little clues like that, but I, I think the, the whole- bigger the bigger contrast was land and sea right he was a man of land and the forest and the trees and and now it's completely flipped on him for his own doing but anyways no yeah and i just love <laughs> i love the whole the whole slowly build up of of them going insane and then you start to interpret it like in your own perspective of yeah was it an end of cycle of what's going on like it's, it's you obviously you get like it's the same guy right it's, you know what i try to do and sandra my wife she hates that i do this she hates that I, i'm starting a film and I, as a filmmaker and as a film lover, you already know all of the all of the exactly formulas, right. You know all the formulas that people are trying to be clever with. So my brain automatically went to, I, I and my immediate thought was, is he the younger version of Defoe? 
Yeah. Interesting. You know, and stuff like that, like moments like that where I was like, okay, what are they going to do? What are they going to try and do? How are they going to try to impress me? And well, and, and it did. Script, it did its own thing, which I thought was fantastic. I kind of messed well, up because I, I saw their be... names and they were both Thomas. So I kind of uh, was already like, yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. And in the script, they're basically referred to more as a young man and old man. Oh, okay, young and old. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I thought that was... That's why, yeah. like... Until maybe a little before halfway through the film, do you actually learn like, oh, his name's this and his name's yeah. that? Because mm-hmm. for the most part, he it's still lies a little bit and then comes out at the end. You know, I just did a quick Google search and the meaning of the name Thomas is twin and leader. So that's oh, pretty I love that type of that's, writing. Yeah, that's I, pretty I interesting. I that. You know, I mean, just uh, just their names alone is, is has a lot of meaning. Uh, a like looking man. Tomas. Tomas. you know twin Tomas. or leader so in a way um defoe there's even a line in in the film where defoe with it where Pattinson says you're not the president you're not my father and yeah. i think uh, yeah that's what you're trying to be and i think that was that's interesting in terms of being a leader being his boss being um so. treating him anyways, like a dog yeah anyways sorry Castro, i interrupted your your thought but um what else did you think about the film no no i mean i like i kind of like that I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, right? But I kind of like how, they cool. have, how he doesn't show you what he sees, which is kind of beautiful because you kind of oh. like, well, his insanity got him to that place. Yeah. Who cares what he sees? You know, I mean, that's that's that the was, the quote unquote. Jaws. Answer, yeah. I, I feel like that's the quote unquote Jaws moment of this film. Right. Is, is you don't oh. see much of the shark until you see the shark. Right. But um, and I think that that's that's the <laughs> number one, like, implementation that Alfred Hitchcock did for all of us. That, yeah, yeah no. that is also like also the the Lovecraftian themes of the movie of Lovecraft, yeah. uh, which basically uh, the thing about Lovecraft, in case of uh, somebody doesn't somebody doesn't know, yeah, uh, his stories are basically about cosmic horror, which mm. is the fear of the unknown, the fear of that, that that cannot be explained because it's way too beyond the comprehension. So usually in his stories, uh, his descriptions of the monsters that he sees aren't actually like descriptions it's more about like what he feels like i i i can't just explain Mm -hmm. so basically that moment that you say is basically that like we can't we don't see what he's seeing oh i see what you're saying because we just can't comprehend what the hell he's seeing yeah i think i think also it's it's a commentary on or not a commentary but it's 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 a storytelling tactic that a lot of filmmakers do and some people do it successfully and other people yeah. don't and the successful part that eagers uh, did in this is you you have to take a side and you have to start realizing who am i picking who's going crazier who's you know taking you have to start taking that approach and i think very few filmmakers successfully take that approach um in this particular case you're wondering the whole time well, who's, who's fucking crazy and then yeah. when the foes character you know we have the scene where he's like yeah that's why you just chased me with your axe and you destroyed yeah. the boat outside and you're like, the you fuck did I question? just watch? <laughs> like, yeah. You question yourself. So, so I think that's an interesting um, perspective on that. Um, but wow. I mean, okay. The Lao Yokomoto, you guys had seen this picture before. I'm sure you saw it early on when it came out. And Amazon had the exclusive rights to distribute this film very early on. Um, so what do you guys think? Well, I don't know if you want to go. Like, I have a little anecdote. Um, like... I, I, I keep missing the ball when it comes to sharing films with people and like trying to have good date nights. I, I just, I, I guess I don't pick like the nice Disney film. I, I, I decided 
you know what? Like, um, I was having like a little family movie night, and I remember uh, thinking, like, oh, I heard about the lighthouse. It seems interesting. Oh my God. <laughs> let's see, <laughs> let's see what happens. So you know, come on, mom, come on, dad, get my girlfriend. You know, get some yeah. popcorn, sit in. It's probably about you know fishes. It's like Finding Nemo. You know, they, just let us. <laughs> so it's a nautical feel. It's just got a nautical feel. That's it. That's God, I mean, I mean seeing that. It, it was kind of like in for a penny, in for a pound. So when things started yeah. getting really weird and I mean, mermaids are coming and not being mermaids are being different. Um, yeah. You just kind of, yeah, but you, you start going with it. And I mean, my, my impressions was just how well paced of a film where you're, it's kind of uh, like a film that we'll probably talk about in the tower crown, but um, that they're able to show that kind of like path towards insanity but it's not like these. Uh, yeah, you're not. You're not in a. You're not in a in an insane asylum. It's you know, not, not on the nose. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. That that you're yeah. kind of going through this journey, and you just think everything's going to kind of like subside, and it's things not, are going to get it's fine. It's not one yeah. flew over a cuckoo's nest, and you're not yeah. seeing them automatically kind of lose their shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially yeah. like uh, you're all you're doing is you're getting these feelings of like don't do this because there's there's the bad omens behind it. You know, like don't oh, it's not I, it's not good to kill a seabird. I want to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, and after that happens, you're just kind of like there, knowing that like he did something that it's already been discussed in this universe, kind of like that's mm. bad. And now you're just kind of like what what happens when you kill a seabird? Yeah. You know, mm. and that that being kind of like what spirals things and then yeah, you just feeling li- i think like you're seeing him out of control which makes you feel like you're kind of out of control when it comes yeah. to like what's going to happen next in the film the first time around and i think it was just so well crafted so so well put together um for uh kind of like you said a lovecraftian horror or for a, a bit of an art house film i think it just did itself so well so yeah yeah uh so, and what's the family thought of it <laughs> oh no they they left uh as soon as they could uh i don't i'm, I'm currently living alone <laughs> looking for roommates no, uh, no they like it's funny because um i i, I was like I i'm know, currently living in the lighthouse yeah <laughs> no um with like ash my girlfriend i like told her that you know i was like so what'd you think and she was like well it was a film i know that and then I remember yeah. we we're gonna watch. I was gonna watch it again because of the podcast, and I was like, "Hey, I got it. Are we gonna watch it again?" And she's like, "You go ahead. You go ahead." <laughs> but did you guys have, like? Did you guys have a conversation of what you guys thought, or she just took it as the surface thing? You know, I think she took it as okay. Here's the thing. I, I think for and it's the kind of it's the pleasure that comes when you understand like art house and when you are part of like the normal stream of like movies and television yeah. and film yeah. right. is that you when you watch an art house film at least for me i don't expect to understand everything but i really appreciate the experience and i I appreciate trying to understand it and trying to go through that and And you're you're you're, you're a better man than me the low i want to interject in that point because when it comes to art house pictures um that's primarily the point look art is meant to be interpreted not understood understood right number one so art house pictures uh to me I get, I feel not, well, they're not frustrating, but then I feel stupid because I'm not understanding. <laughs> and that's part of yeah. the reason where, I'm, where, where I, don't, I, I can understand and I can appreciate when something is left for interpretation. But when somebody who does art house pictures that are trying to be too deep, I'll give you an example. It's part of the reason why I don't like Pedro Almodovar. It's he's not a, a director on my top list. Them, yeah. uh, if, to me, he's just, he's, he's not my cup of tea. 
Um, and part of the reason is because the films I have watched of his, and I've, I've seen a few. Um, have I, you seen this in 11? Yes. Talking about kind of horror? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't oh, seen Pain, Pain and Gain, the new one. I haven't seen, or Pain and Glory. Or, or Pain and Gain. Pain and Gain, right? I haven't seen it. But um, I just think Almodovar has that that ability to go deeper into his own artistic interpretations. And for me, I want to leave an art house picture thinking and feeling like, well, I interpreted it this way. This is what I got out of it. Um, just much like any other film, right? That's how yeah. I, want, I want to interpret a film. So when it gets too deep, uh, one of those examples, and I think you and I Idolau talked about this, was uh, David Lynch's is Eraserhead. At art house, but very experimental. And I walked out thinking, what the fuck? And, and <laughs> it was just too much for me. But yeah. I know that it has a market. I know it has a fan base. I know there's individuals who who really can appreciate that side of things. And, and I, I applaud you. I'm, I'm more of a classic Hollywood film nerd. Um, so when it comes to the new era, French new wave and on that people kind of started trying to do, uh, it's it's very this pic this picture did good for me the, the lighthouse was great and it was a good example of an art house film that i can appreciate yeah uh, but in the art house world i'm not i'm not your it's, man it's <laughs> like i think it was art house enough that you know for for art house fans you know you yeah. appreciate it but not so much that you know it, it i can't even say that no it broke it broke a line because I, I know that with my family and with ash yeah. that kind of like feeling at the end like well, now what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. Like, like yeah. what, 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 what kind of happens afterwards? And, and for me, I appreciated yeah. that because then it's that whole extra journey of like, well, what did it mean? What was going yeah. on here? Yeah. What did I want to take away from it? But yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, uh, but I like that. It's not so existential. A, a lot of these art house pictures are, are modernized now. And a lot of independent filmmakers are taking that approach mm -hmm. of making an art house picture. I think this one had a story. Yeah, uh, and I know that sounds so surfaced and so nonchalant and so whatever, but this art house picture had a story that I could appreciate, that I could, uh, you know, dissect. Enough so that you could you could see what was happening next and understand yeah. it, but not you know. If not I heard, really, yeah, I heard that it wasn't just story, random no? images, huh? Or based on true events, no. No, uh, it was from based what I understand, several things. Yeah, yeah read it. Uh, there is these uh, two, especially these two lighthouse stories. That are kind of like at this point, kind of like folk tales. Oh, and okay. one of, one about, of like, which is Edgar Allan Poe's, by the way. One of which is based on an Edgar Allan Poe. Which one? And which another one? one. Oh, my bad. Uh, uh, also, part of it is based on uh, the Flannan uh, Lighthouse uh, Vanishings, which is oh, about yeah. like these three people who vanished out of the out of a lighthouse. Well, we don't. Nobody knows what the hell happened. Yeah, yeah, ultimately they're folk tales, though. I wouldn't say that they're based on true stories. Ultimately, they're folk. Well, tales. that the Flannan one is actually like an unsolved crime type of thing. Oh, okay. Because yeah, uh, I can see this happening for sure, especially back then. Yeah, yeah mermaids, man. In Scotland, mermaids. mermaids. Well, not that, but two people go insane. In the and then mermaids. <laughs> and then especially in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> I I like that it didn't try to dive away from the the. Uh, you hear a lot of these um these moments of sailors and and men. Um, and especially in Nova Scotia, I mean, it, it's, you hear a lot of these, these, uh, stereotypes to a certain degree of like, when men are at sea, they're desperate. They're going to jerk hey, off to anything. Know, they're going to they're gonna be with other men. Yeah. And it's true. Right. Man. Um, but I like that they I'll didn't try to derive away from that. They, they embraced it and they used it. Um, so I thought that was interesting that they, they're not going to try to dive away from that. I, I will say this though. I, because of what I heard of people saying, 
I remember Oscar telling me about this film early on, and he, 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 I remember he told me, hey, um, you want the perfect film for what we're currently feeling with this pandemic and this quarantine, you got to watch The Lighthouse. So I thought it was going to be much more, they're going to be stuck in The Lighthouse for a few weeks, but I, I, I mean, it surprised me that they weren't. It surprised me that they were just going out and about on their duties. Um, I guess my my interpretation of that was like, oh, I'm going to go into this film and they're going to be stuck because they can't go out because of the storm. Two sailor men, you know, crashed on land. But it's not. It was two men who were working, two working men who were going about their duties in and out. Yeah. Two wikis going in and out of the lighthouse and the surrounding areas to to just fulfill their jobs. I mean, yeah. uh, I thought that thanks was- to the storm and the bad luck. Quotation marks, right. bad luck of killing a of seabird. Killing a sea, uh, the rescue team, well, the, the, the time wasn't able to get there and right. actually get them offshore. Yeah. 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 Or That's why they that. weren't really coming at all. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I interpreted it that way too. Like, given the Defoe's character, they pro- he was lonely, dude. He just wanted somebody Do you think there. he was getting them drunk or just because he couldn't drink water? Because, you I know, the water both. would just come out. I, I think, think it's a, the sit. Yeah, I think it's both. What do you think of that shot where uh, after he um, kills the seagull, it like cranes up and you see the winds go from like oh. northeast to like southwest oh, or something yeah, like that? Like they, like they just like shift and it's, yeah. I mean, it, it was really, I guess, it, awkwardly satisfying that just I, like I, seeing the winds kind of change yeah. and getting that feeling. Those turn. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't know. Just quote, quote, And actually, Eggers have, has confirmed that like, <clears throat> That was a deliberate uh, thing that he wanted to put like on the nose mm-hmm. because uh, the winds are changing. I mean, he says, beca- yeah, because of the fact that this was such a surreal thing, and he wanted the audience to kind of like get in that mindset that of, of the film of what he was trying to say. And basically, the moment that he kills the bad omen, what was it, yeah. was explicitly told, do not do this, everything goes to hell because that's when. Uh, because of, that's when the storm picks up. That's when he doesn't get well. The the team doesn't come to pick him up and all that stuff, right? Do they, do they explain they get why, drunk why for the first bad. time? Yeah. What's yeah. Up? Do they I'll explain just, why, why, it's, why it's bad luck? I oh, think uh, it's one of those fishermen things, right? Like yeah, it's, apparently, it's yeah. an actual folk tale that uh, some some believe that seagulls hold the soul of dead fishermen, and then yeah. yeah so, but that's like an actual like folklore and tale yeah, and all yeah. that. That's why they tell you not to kill a seabird. That's why right. I like that they went chicken. into that. I like that if you're gonna show, you're gonna make a world of of a world I'm not used to. Of, I mean do your research and do it the right yeah. way. And I think that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the Dan Harmon story circle. Dan Harmon's the creator oh, yeah. of Rick and Morty among well, yeah. other things like community and a bunch of stuff. But it's, if you're a writer, it's a really good thing to study. Um, especially if you're doing episodic stuff, but even if you're not, it's basically a reformation of the hero's journey. And if you know anything about writing and writing scripts, the hero's journey is basically your Bible and your formula that you want to try and implement all these points hit all these points i i very early on didn't follow the hero's journey um i i just i kind of wanted to break the rules that way i felt like and eh, i don't want to follow a formula but ultimately even if you don't follow the formula you're following the formula there's a beginning middle and end the hero has to be uncomfortable and then get comfortable i mean there's a whole lot of things right so you sound like via dude you sound a lot like via. <laughs> no i mean no, it's just there's a lot of formulas to go about when you're writing right and the dan Harmon story it has a, a list of steps right 11 steps basically well eight he calls it the dan Harmon eight um and um i like that there's a there's a, a step there called crossing the threshold or um pay a heavy price for it 
another one of these two steps in writing. Um, and I like that when he crosses the threshold of killing the bird, um, that's really what's going to set you off and kick you off. And Austin is celebrating a score on, of his team. Um, so, yeah, no, I just thought it was interesting. If you study writing, if you study, study the story circle, um, it's, it's pretty interesting that you have a very clear indication of when, quote unquote, the winds are changing yeah. uh, for the for the character, for the hero. Um, so I just I just wanted to bring that up. I thought that was I thought of that right away. Like, oh, this is the moment that this is where things are going to change. Yeah. I know things are changing. You don't have to tell me. And it, you have to show well, me. Well, following that, when do you think <clears throat> finally goes mad? I think there's a certain point. I think it's that day because that day is the first time that he actually gets drunk with them. Mm. Well. And that's when they like you could say that that's when they start losing time. I'll, I'll yeah. say it's the uh, the midway point. It, actually, uh, going back to what you were saying about the structure and that being successfully implemented um, at the exact midway point when yeah. you know they're at this point where you feel like okay, uh, you going uh, that should be the yeah. solution that you finally go home after this hard journey and all that, and then the, the the boat doesn't come for them. Yeah. And that, that, that's the, it's that's hard. Some- it's hard, by the way, as a writer, it's hard. It's so hard to write a story where the first quote unquote, the first half of the film, you're trying to introduce the world and you're trying to introduce the characters in a sufficient way. And then the second half of the film, I'm not a horror writer by any means, by the way, but the second half of the film, you're, you're, everything goes to shit. And you yeah. think of great horror films, especially modern films, like things like get out that won an Academy Award for, for screenplay writing and stuff like that. So when you think of stories like that and horror stories, it's my, I, I'm, I'm just going to say it, horror writer, horror directors, you have it easier than most other writers because you can set up the world. Um, so. you, can, you can set up the world. I think so because you can set up the world in a very – you could be even cheesy about it because I want to say it's, it's forgiving for being on the nose. I, yeah, I think if you, exact, if you have, exactly. if you have like a romantic exactly. movie, like let's say you have like a drama with uh, two uh, well, more characters yeah. getting an interpersonal conflict and all that. Yeah. If you're too on the nose about like, well, did They're you hear that forgiving. this person doesn't talk to this person? Cause this, this, this happened. Like you're like, it's cheesy. It's yeah. cheesy. It's but cheesy. Well, it's on the nose. It's cliche. It's the. But if you hear album. like, "Oh, did you hear that there's a boogeyman?" Well, then it's cool. You exactly. Know, it's not- <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I feel like horror writers have it a little easier than than if you're writing another genre. But um, in the this lighthouse, definitely case, the lighthouse respected. Yeah. You know that that structure. Uh, going going back to like the midpoint uh, at the exact middle of the film feeling that shift i think that's when you start saying he's going mad because at that point it's it's this unknown and like you were talking about um the yeah what's his name well cosmic horror and all that the fact that the boat didn't come and lovecraft that the boat didn't come there's no real telling when the boat's coming and all you can do is your job till it comes. Right. And then at that point, I think everything starts going downhill for him. And then that's when you're just in his mind. If you're kind of numerical with it too, um, Defoe's character says, um, how long have we been here? Five weeks. And if you're numerical with it, you have five, right? And you have two to begin, two to end, and you have a middle one. And I think that that in, in connections to your midpoint, uh, chronologically the low i think that's the week where you know we have two weeks that we're just setting up the world and we're just setting up the characters and we're just seeing them on their day-to-day and then we have the one week where he gets drunk where the boat's not coming where they have to dig out their quote-unquote the rations um so and then the last two weeks okay. uh, wait so are you you know wait was that 
the the weeks that he was supposed to work and then at the end of the fifth week the bow would come or is that five no weeks i think it was after? five weeks that they had been there yeah wait a minute well the, no actually here's the thing uh on that scene because it's the first time that they get drunk and that's when supposedly in the next morning that's when uh the boat was going to come in and save them so they get blackout drunk and all that stuff yeah. uh he kind of does his chores in the morning all hangover yeah, but the boat never comes so, but the, immediately the foe uh starts saying that where's the provisions where's the provisions yeah uh we, we need to ration out yeah, we need and to. so uh, you see that robert pettison he's just like and it's uh, it's so what do you counterintuitive mean? it's so counterintuitive because he's the word ration you know you're, there's no indication of rationing what they were uh, the alcohol they weren't rationing yeah. it out at all they were divulging dig up just, a hole you know um so i thought that was interesting uh, so, so the thing is that so they do that and right after that's when the foe says okay you know what tell help me to recollect have we been here for five, five weeks have we been here for two days is this all have right. been one day <laughs> like yeah. like uh, because like, apparently he has been saying for weeks that that they need to be rashing it out and that Patterson has been saying it every day that hey the bow has <clears throat> did not come today and so mm-hmm. it's it's when it starts playing around with but it just what, it makes what, you what think, going on. i think i think more than the question that everybody's asking themselves and more than the question that castro you were asking was who went more insane and and why i the question i was asking myself was um, yes, were they going going insane? But more than anything, what the what, what is yeah? What the foe? What is how how does loneliness come into the equation for all of this? Um, for both characters, because for Defoe's character, loneliness played a huge toll on his mental state. Well, he's been there for thirteen weeks for thirteen right. Christmases, right? Thirteen Christmases. Yeah. Left his wife, left his kids. Yeah, yeah he left his. Exactly. So I thought you that know. was interesting. Is loneliness? I I wanted to explore that theme more uh, with these characters, and Robert Pattinson's character is running number one. So he's by himself. He's on his own. He's not experiencing human contact because he's risking it off. He does, right? So uh, upon talking to another character, he's trying to get along with him at first. He's just trying to be cool. Hey, I don't want any trouble. You know, this is what the manual says. I'm following my job. Um, and then ultimately, when they get drunk together, they have more of a formative relationship. But why, why does he say, don't spill your beans on me? Because he knows because he, he knows that. That he didn't want to be yeah well he didn't want to be that person uh that if he yeah like if he knew what well, doesn't give a fuck about people take yeah. it this way the only time that he could enjoy his company and they could relax together is when really they knew nothing about each other when they were just getting yeah. drunk and joking around and all that it's kind of like stuff. it's like i think it's like when you explore relationships it's that yeah. it's when you explore relationships and the relationship if you spill, quote unquote, you 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 spill your beans with somebody, that's when the relationship yeah, is serious. Yeah, but that's when then you know, hey, I want you to have no secrets with me and stuff like that. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. You, that's where the relationship that's becomes what, serious. So, oh, okay, so oh, Paul just wanted a one night stand, man. He just wants to do his job. He just wants a, a, a you know, unchalan que la idea. He just wants the the chap to help him out, um, and that's it. No muss, no fuss. I, I don't want to have a relationship with you, type of deal. Okay. You know, I, I was I, hearing. Um, oh, I'm sorry, but I was hearing a theory or uh, people who were breaking down the film mm-hmm. and you know really trying to decipher meaning out of all this and and the way you kind of like characterize it as loneliness and how how these people are battling with loneliness and uh, what's interesting is a lot of or some people say that this kind of looks at that odd mixture that happens 
between the line between physical violence and sexual pleasure and how um, even psychologically I've heard that it stimulates the same part of the brain yeah. When, when either of those situations occur that you're either about to become like physically aggressive or sexually active and all that. Yeah. And it shows how in this situation where they're just confined together and they're experiencing all these different emotions and it can't go out anywhere cathartically. Yeah. They're constantly just melded together. You know, it, it, they're always yeah. like at each other's throats and about to kiss each other, which is really yeah. weird. Yeah. And it, it, it's how they're battling with that whole situation. And maybe even how, when you're isolated by yourself, those lines become blurred and all the emotions yeah. that you would have over time kind of become blurred because they can't go anywhere. They, I mean, they can't. Even just, just gender roles, like even yeah. gender roles plays it into the equation, right? The, the manliness, the, the, the tough guy, the tough fisherman. Um, and even then, I think part of your question, Castro, was uh, can be answered through through that because when you hear the, the, the again, the cliche, or you hear the, the tough fisherman, I, I, I'm going to, the Irish, you know, when you talk about the Irish, the Irish don't, they keep everything in. Yeah. They keep everything in. They don't tell their feelings. They don't tell their, you know, that's kind of a, away, yeah. right. So I think that in, in terms of gender roles, I, I kept thinking to myself, I know these guys, because I guess I had heard it at some point. Um, I kept thinking, I know these guys are going to make out at some point. Yeah, so, me too. I mean, it's bound right, to happen. It's going to happen, right? So when I started thinking that you start thinking like, well, Defoe is obviously the tougher exterior, the manly man. And Pattinson's kind of more of the, you know, he's more sensitive to things. He's the newbie. He's got the eyes of a girl. Got the feminine. So you start thinking about <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. And um, and I thought it was a very interesting pivotal moment where when they're about to kiss, he pushes him and uh, and he does this. And he puts yeah. his fist yeah. up and he does the fighting thing. They start um, fighting. Like, they're fighting. Almost like, like you're, hey, you're no, we're gonna, man. Yeah. You know, Ooh, we're men. That's we gotta, yeah. you know. Because it's, it's obviously, it's like, too obvious. Yeah. Right, right you know, we're men and we got to fight and they do fight ultimately. So I think that's just a pivotal, important change in terms of like, uh, almost like it could have been, it could have turned into, uh, Brokeback Mountain, but, <laughs> but that was the moment that didn't cause for that. You know, that was the moment that brought them back to, to their reality. Um, right. so I thought it was interesting. That particular moment caught my attention. For that. Although Pedersen Pat later on still believes that, that he is kind of like, um, leading him on, especially with the, a with a wooden hitting, hiding this wooden figure, wooden, trying yeah. to get yeah. him out and everything. That's just yeah. going crazy. Though. It's a, it's a, that line of I mean, thought, especially at the end, was so. I think it great. also kind of goes back to like they both want that same thing, which is just human connection. And yeah. and I mean, with William Defoe's character being the wicker, who he's constantly having to take care of the lighthouse, which means mm -hmm. you're isolated or you're jumping from partner to partner and uh, Pattinson's character being this man on the run, they both want human connection. They're both in a situation where maybe they have an opportunity for that. And it's, it's like, at the end, they want more than that. And that, that fight is kind of like, we want the same thing, but we can't have it. And I'm going to fight you for it. And it's this yeah. really well, interesting. There's, kind of there's another thing where Pattinson just wants to go up to the light. I don't understand why he just doesn't let him. I know there's why why wouldn't you just let him? Because They're, it's because it's him. it's the only consistent relationship he's had in the past 13 years. It's the only that, relationship. Okay, with that with you saying that, then the foe's the crazy one. Well, yes, but they're both crazy. The craziest ones. one, crazy. <laughs> They're both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. I, look, I I'm I'm gonna get into some really like uh, um I don't know some really crazy interpretations, but I think this is one thing that came to mind. 
Um, number one was the biggest one for me with the lighthouse, the relationship with the lighthouse was warmth. Um, and when you're, when you're in the relationship with somebody else or when you, I mean, I'll, I'll even throw it out there in the sexual aspect of things, warmth is, is what turns a guy on, right? Warmth and the warmth of a woman and that whole kind of side of things. And Not I me. think that's, I, just I don't up. know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw the white shot when Panson's looking up. And Defoe standing in front of the lighthouse naked. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, the first moment, right? And then he walks out and he puts his clothes on. It's a sexual thing. Um, it's a, That's how I interpreted it. And I think that it's, he has both a sexual and an intimate relationship with the lighthouse. You know? There's this one thing that got, that got uh, scrapped because uh, if not, it would become NC-17 movie. Oh, okay. But uh, there was this one thing that uh, Edgar's wanting to put. Where it was this uh, shot when in the montage where uh, Robert Pattinson is masturbating, okay, and you kind of see where he kind of goes through and there's like the scenes of him like with the mermaid and all that yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. at the same yeah. time. So there was a shot that he wanted to put where basically you actually see the uh, like the erect penis, and it kind of like slowly like fades uh, like into the lighthouse. In, into oh. the shape of the lighthouse. Yeah. Well, you know, but I yeah, think, that will make it an NC-17 movie. And they said, no, yeah. no, we, we're not gonna. We're I not mean, gonna so yeah. that that scene where the lighthouse is like uh, horizontal and then it goes perpendicular. I think that did enough, you know, because yeah. you're seeing him standing yeah. up, and it's <laughs> wow. yeah, like yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It has enough, a lot of, know. not surprisingly, Castro, by the way, and and this is part of the thing. Like, uh, me, correct me if I'm wrong here, the law on Yokomoto. You guys are gonna know more about this than I do, but. Art house pictures tend to dive, dive themselves into sexual connotations and and sexual meaning. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of them do uh, sexual identity and and a, yeah. a lot of stuff. I remember Castro. I think you and I saw a film in in Avant Mirror's class um, about gay. It was like gay sex and gay freedom, um, and it was a uh, it was an interesting piece. But it was like the first time that they had ever, ever experimented with that oh, yeah, yeah. art house picture. And I forget the name of it. It was. It's very, very. Um, oh, was it uh, about like? Um, I think in like nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Was it like homosexuality in the the um, black community? Is I that one. Because hmm. I was think there like was a that. segment in the film about that, but it wasn't entirely about that. If I'm not mistaken. Okay, because there's there's an art house film that's that's dedicated yeah. to that. I forgot what the name of it is. Yeah, but anyways, in, in terms of art house films, they tend. I'm not saying that's their gag. I'm not saying no, that's no, no, what yeah, they do. But but, but they do tend to explore sexuality in very many, very different ways. Yeah. Um, and in this particular well, one, I I really figure I figured that that's what it was. Um, he says it's mine, and and everybody's initial thought is, oh, he's got a body hidden up there. He did kill his second, and he's hiding it up there. Or yeah. you go the other route of like. Is there a fucking mermaid up there? He's got a mermaid ah, up there. No, no, I'm serious. I, I mean, you go through these different things because well, then also like the weird like squid, well yeah, that the, whole squid the, thing where uh you know at first you're like sees, oh great yeah. that yeah like he's he's jerking That's off on top of the tower mm -hmm. and then yeah and then you see these like tentacles go up and then I think he just wakes up the next day yeah and, yeah. That, then, he and goes then it's through. weird because oh, you know how tentacles have that I just, spermy thing but that's also you know sperm. Yeah. So I just of, thought of this. Uh, it just like because I was going through through this uh, image through that image on my mind. Uh, you know, at the end uh, when Patterson he starts killing him, right? Like he starts like choking him. Yeah. And you see the foe basically becoming uh, this personification of Poseidon. Mm. Yeah, of Poseidon with the, especially with the tentacles and all that yeah. stuff coming yeah. around him and all that. So that 
if we go back to the scene of when uh, Patterson like looks looks up and he is well, you could kind of see interpret that the foe is masturbating to the light. Yeah, yeah. Uh, could that be that basically it means that the uh, foe as Poseidon is fucking the light, hmm. and that's why the tentacles come out and all the goo starts coming out of nowhere. Okay. Like, Interesting. At least. Interpretation of it. That's definitely an interpretation. That's That's definitely an interpretation, Yoko. And that's what I'm saying. Like with 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 art house pictures specifically, you can interpret a ton of of what they're talking about. If if you dive into these characters, yeah. So in my opinion, uh, Castro, that's what it really was. It was she's mine. I'm surprised they didn't use that that pronoun. You know, there there was there was a time that they did use. feminine pronouns to describe the lighthouse and i, I forgot oh, okay. what, what yeah. time it was so yeah th- there was definitely so that quality time. of um yeah where where they perfect had that kind of connection with yeah. the lighthouse and and the light and um yeah yeah even i, describing- I do think it has to do with warmth i'm gonna i'm gonna like if you get into weird comedies look i'm just gonna t- put it put it to you this way think about american pie the uh, reason, not, dude. No, 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 no. I'm yeah, the pie. Why, what, <laughs> what's the whole thing with the pie? Me. Somebody has a story. Somebody tells them, "Oh yeah, I fucked the pie and it felt nice so because it was all nice and warm. <laughs> it was nice and warm, right? It's like warm apple pie. Warm <laughs> apple pie, like warm apple pie. I mean, that's really the interpretation when it comes to warmth and having to do it yourself and not having a woman and that whole thing is like, well, the warmth of the lighthouse. That's that's the ultimate, you yeah. know sexual uh pleasure that i can get through that yeah yeah also you well, can kind of take it that uh he he like Paddington's <laughs> character goes more mad when uh he can't convince himself anymore that uh i, I guess he like he can't masturbate to like distract himself from being yeah. covered in the sea yeah. and all that like when he starts going mad and then he goes out and um he's masturbating it's, it's that whole flash of different images but then after it's over you see the storm raging on and yeah. dripping through the cracks and all that. And yeah. it's just like, now he's covered by it. Like he's covered by the sea. He's covered by the water. It's closing he in on him. He can't escape it. And even yeah. like it hints a little bit of that at first when uh water is just kind of dripping on his face and that's what wakes him up. And it's just, but I think what happened in terms of the going mad scenario that you guys are kind of exploring. I think that Pattinson went, I think they're just, they're both as mad. I think Pattinson went, um mad in a faster pace than defoe's character you know maybe defoe experienced all of these emotions in the matter of these 13 years Mm -hmm. but pattinson experienced all of the emotions that defoe experienced in a matter of five weeks (laughs) and i say that because just think about scale um the 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 mermaid figurine that he was masturbating to is this small thing that he eventually, like the Lao says, he just, it's not distracting him anymore. It's not enough because of this, this thing that's closing in on him. So eventually yeah. he fucking throws it and breaks it and stabs it and just doesn't care for it anymore. Um, but the lighthouse is this big thing. It's the next level. It's uh, a bigger scale, uh, you know, that, that is distracting and it's on top of the water. So if I'm up there, uh, it, it can't, the storm can't get me, you know, that type of mentality. I think, uh, I think, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't yeah. Is that for that sure. makes more sense now, for sure. By the way, did you know that uh, when they built the lighthouse for, for the film, uh, apparently they like undid, I don't know if it was like a thousand watt uh, RE light and then used that bulb with, I think, acrylic or plastic, like, or some, some kind of like hard plastic uh, Fresnel lenses, which mm. ended up costing like a couple of hundred thousands of dollars to, to manufacture but then they said that they, if they had made that same fresnel lens out of glass to make the yeah. lighthouse it would have cost millions 
or something like that. And it was so strong that it could be seen for like, I think like 80 miles away, like the actual lighthouse that they just built. Um, so when they had the scenes with Defoe and Pattinson going up there and looking at the lighthouse, yeah. they had to change out that bulb for a like hundred watt for now. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about that the low because that has, that's a good segue into like the technical aspects of the film. Um, yeah. Because they shot the the they shot obviously the film was shot in black and white. This particular film stock, which is the double X five two two film stock, um, it it requires a shitload of light to yeah. shoot on this film stock, really? like a lot of light. So uh, any nighttime scenes that you were basically seeing were were were, were very lit. bright. Yeah, that's <laughs> were, were lit. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I think you could talk about that a little more though, but I think that it, obviously 35 millimeter black and white double X 522 film stock, but it was shot. What I thought was interesting was the film stock itself was shot on a modern Panasonic film camera. Um, and that's why you have the contrast. And I think again, the Lao, you'll dive into it, but the film stock made it the look that it wanted to be and you had to adjust to that film stock but the cameras were made it look pristine and nice and clear and and fine so uh, i don't know i know you did your research to so i think you. Can I, I did a little that. bit but um so apparently that film stock because they were, they were definitely going for an older look an older aesthetic something that resembled films of like early cinema 1890s yeah. um that kind of film stock uh, before uh, I think it's called like chromatic film was available yeah. where it picked up more spectrums of light mm -hmm. um, that, that Kodak film stock basically it can pick up, I think blues and greens and oh, it yeah. picks up, it picks up UV light really well. So what mm -hmm. happens is that, yeah. So when people would dress in costumes or when they were playing with that, they would play in blues and greens because then they could make different shades of like gray and all that, but it didn't pick up red. And with yeah. red, uh, what happens is that it would be like flesh tone and faces because we have like uh, blood vessels and all that around there. Yeah. If you uh, paler, well, no, no, it gets more saturated because it can't like interpret right. it. That's, that's, so right. what happens is that it gets darker. So when um, they get more worked up, their faces are dark, darker. You can see Pattinson's character when he gets blood on his face; it's just black. It's it, yeah. because yeah. the film stock itself doesn't pick up red, mm -hmm. and then also because of the UV light. Um, it doesn't pick up clouds. A lot of older photos, it's just this white washed out sky and it's because it's very susceptible to like UV light. So he wanted to play with that kind of idea, play yeah. with the colors, play with um, the old fashioned look. But then also this film stock was chosen because it makes everybody look so withered. And then yeah. the more that they exerted it themselves, looks the more like that they were when there. You see, when you see caricatures of Edgar Allan Poe's stories, that's yeah. what these characters look yeah. like. I mean, drawn in pencil in black yeah. and white, and that's what yeah. these characters look like. And I think that's the look they were going for. If you're a filmmaker, and if you're especially a cinematographer, the laws of cinematographer, so he's he really knows this world. I think it's interesting to note this: the film stock was one aspect of the filming. The camera, which was the Panavision Millennium XL2 camera, is another aspect. It's more of a modern camera. The Baltar lenses. These lenses are vintage lenses that go as far back as the 19, 1918 and as late as 1938 from what I was reading. So we're talking about lenses that literally were shot were, or designed or remodeled for, for modern cameras. Um, but they're, they're lenses from the early 1900s to shoot this film on, you know? So yeah. I think it's interesting. So we're talking about the film stock. We're talking about the modern camera. And we're talking about the vintage lenses. Yeah. So, yeah. Think about yeah. that for a second. That's, yeah, yeah. that's fascinating to, to I, I make even, this uh, look come to life, you know. 
Uh, I even saw like a small interview with uh, Robert Eager where uh, he (laughs) went into Panavision and uh, asked, what do you have that's off the menu? (laughs) Like something (laughs) that's just nobody has, nobody offers and all that. And they brought out these from like a drawer, these vintage, vintage lenses uh, that get super swirly on the side. It's very unique look to it, but it's also a very vintage look. And um, it's something that I know that they only used a few times while filming because the the look was so heavy uh this this very yeah. swirled bokeh around it um but it all gave way to this idea of the dream logic that was going to start happening and him having this kind of like is everything we're seeing in his head or is everything we're seeing part of reality and then when they started it, to use more of the lenses it was to really put us and into it has like, it has i might add i might add it it has its drawbacks the film was made for a mere four million dollars um, which I think is interesting because uh, I'm reading a thing here where it says the camera equipment broke down frequently due to the level of moisture on location. Yeah. And all three different types of camera equipment from different eras were coupled together, right? So it's almost like 3D when you put two cameras together um, or, or more. Or And, and nowadays, Cameron and, and John Lando, what they're doing is they're putting the cameras on top of each other. And that's how they're mirroring 3D. So when you're coupling these cameras, it's one of them's for backup, which is your modern, more sophisticated camera. And one of them is for the look that you're going for, right? That's what he was trying to do. But it's it looks like Pattinson had to go into the ocean 25 times because the camera lens kept fogging up while they were shooting the scene where he was going into the wow. ocean. <laughs> so, I mean, it has its drawbacks. And I'm not recommending it for anybody. It has its drawbacks. Yeah. But if you have the budget, I mean, look, um, $4 million isn't unheard of for an art house picture. That's about the standard for an art house picture, 4 million bucks. Um, so the, 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 I mean, I don't know how many weeks they spent on production, but when you're at that many weeks, it was about 38 this, days, if I'm correct, 38 days. Okay. Oh, so yeah. 38 days is interesting because I think, Absolutely. I think these filmmakers are man, max, minimizing their casualties by, having three actors, Defoe, Pattinson, and the mermaid. Those were the three actors. That's it. Yeah. Um, and then having the biggest crew, the biggest light. Oh, the fourth one, it kind of like pops in. Who the? Which was... Uh, oh, the... Well, when, oh, whenever yeah. he remembered... The guy the, he murdered. The oh, oh sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or let die. He let right. die. Well, he, let or die. Let die. he just watched well, him they, die. They, that's yes (laughs) (laughs) no but i think i think it's interesting you're minimizing your casualties that way right because you're exploring a filmmaking technique that isn't new by any means but it's it's very very risky and you know what you're going into so you're minimizing your casualties by having a small cast having one location um you know so i think that's very interesting uh on a four million dollar budget uh also uh you know, with this being in the conversation for like cinematography and everything like that, and and I mean the amount of energy that they put into it, I was hearing that the set, you know, was built for this aspect ratio. They were oh. trying to build the set to have it where um, it would give just enough like width to get all the walls and just enough height to show a little bit of the ceiling where it adds to that claustrophobia. But (laughs) if you look, especially for those early shots, when they're tracking Patterson going through each of the rooms, they fit perfectly into the camera and they they're just tracking him the whole way through. So everything was really bit built to like, to scale for yeah, to scale where you feel like you're seeing their interactions and you're getting these two shots, but it's showing you that the the rooms kind of end there. That that's mm-hmm. all they have. The only safety that they have is whatever's in that box that we're watching. You know, that not only so that, that, not that, only that, but that's I the think thing when when you have, when you're 
when you're awesome at pre-production, mm. like just to plan all these things in advance, yeah. That's, yeah. it just shows how awesome it has to be. Not only that, but there's I I found particularly interesting the scenes <laughs> where you had the um the lanterns and it was just them two in the room, whether they were on the ground, yeah. whether they were in the in the in the table. Um, those intimate moments I found very interesting, particularly because it was just one lantern. That lantern was giving off the light, I mean, to the characters, right? Giving off all of the light in this small room. Yeah. So that tells you a lot. If it's one tiny lantern that's giving you light for the entire room, that's a small ass room. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think it was particularly interesting to see like, oh man, this is, how much more intimate can you get? With, with and then something. also with something like the lantern and the age of this film, because we're, we're thinking that this has to be before um, modern inventions. I mean, they have to bring like oil up to the lamp and stuff right. like that. Um, that that little lantern that's kind of like lighting up their meal is that yeah. only sense of safety, especially at night. Yeah. Like basically yeah. if you went anywhere else, it, it's supposed to be pitch black, just yeah. dark, not safe. You're near the sea, you're near ledges, you know. I think That's, it's. Uh, by the way, I I got scared when he woke up all hungover, and he, I thought he was gonna drink the water, man. I thought he was I, gonna I, drink I, the oh, dirty man. water. I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do it. I got freaked out. Um, yeah. Well, I think. By I, the way, goddamn, that seagull is such a bitch, right? <laughs> He's such a dick, man. Just I, picking at it. Still have eyes? It didn't have eyes, right? <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it was one eye. One eye. Well, some people yeah, were trying to say I... that, you know, uh, because he, he claims that like Defoe uh, killed his partner and then the seagulls carry the souls of dead seamen. So basically the seagull was trying to warn him. It kept tapping the glass. It kept ah. like picking at his leg. It wouldn't leave oh, him alone because it was trying to be like, dude, get out. Safe get away. Get out. Exactly. Yeah, thinking, That's yeah. good. That's wow. good. I didn't and, think and that. And Defoe's cool. a body snatcher from Get Out and it all, it all comes <laughs> together. Yeah. By the way, um, Castro, you'll like this this particular fun fact. Uh, apparently, Robert Eagers has stated that the scene where Pattinson's character, you know, when he gets, as as Robert Pattinson's character would put it, he gets jism on his face. This is the word used in the film. They said jism. Yeah, I wouldn't have used jism. that. Okay. Jism. Um, it, was it was inspired by the Big Lebowski. What? Oh, no, not jism. It was all the shit and piss. Oh, oh. yeah, you, you, you smell. Yeah, the well, you know that uh, after after one of their drunken nights, they they have they what they do is that they piss and they shit into these like chamber pots. pots. Yeah, yeah, the pots chamber that pots. they're taking. So out. so he goes, he grabs them and like in this big oh, ass storm, when get to he goes. Oh, that was, oh, was oh, Lebowski. I was inspired it. by Lebowski. It was an actual oh, tribute to Big Lebowski. Oh, okay, he, okay. He you know, and the wind all the shit right to him. Yes. I love that scene so much. So we we talked we talked about the Big Lebowski on the podcast and 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 uh yeah I didn't know that. So that was an interesting That's pretty cool, dude. That's cool. Yeah. Um I there's a film that I I hope we talk about at some point on this podcast and whatever to say say what you will. Um but I one of the things that I love about Gangs of New York is the the diving oh, into of course the, the obligatory martin scorsese the, obli- the obligatory martin oh. scorsese mentioned <laughs> no but in gangs in new york they have they talk about world building right and oh, when yeah. and and one of the most outstanding things about that film is the music um of that era that they repric you know they re- they they talk of they sing mm-hmm. literally and you get to hear the yeah, the yeah. music of that time i thought it was so cool when the characters in the lighthouse did that 
they they don't have music. They don't have think about that the bare necessities. They don't they, have a radio. They, they just they remember their songs. They remember yeah. the their their yeah. old songs oh and goodness. they're singing and they're dancing and um I thought that was so cool uh just to hear and if you hear the talking about the songs music like, and all that stuff. Interesting, but anyways, yeah, that, yeah, go. That's one of the things that got me into the movie so much was uh, <laughs> like the score also. This mix of five corns and stuff like this. Is that real? Awesome thread. Uh, yeah. What the foghorn? Uh, yeah, like is it a true or is it added? Because I've heard that song well, like, have a horn that just. Yeah, mm. I don't know if this one did. I, they never showed it, but I don't know if this one did. But uh, oh, now the the thing the thing that I always found interesting because mm-hmm. throughout this movie, the foe just farts. And yeah, that's yeah, what I like about this. Script, this, this tells you how to do a fart joke, because goddamn, it's so funny every time he, he does. And they, what I do love <laughs> is that there's a point where it mixes the farts with the foghorn sound. Oh yeah, and so basically every time like you hear the foghorns, you can imagine it's. I mean, Patterson they, he, just hearing this relentless and yeah. mirage of farts. I, I I was reading a, a it's interesting we talk about the, the sound design because I was reading that while Eagers was writing the script he spent hours listening like while he was writing he he would put on YouTube videos of waves crashing of and like farts. Uh, and farts and farts <laughs> no of like leaky roofs and leaky windows and like that he threw himself into that world that way he was just listening to those nautical sounds quote unquote um, so I think that the sound it's design good. plays a huge it does feel role. Real. Yes. Yeah, the sound design yeah. plays a huge role. And also the idea of it being kind of relentless that like, you know, you see Patterson's frustration when the sounds come crashing in and there's no there's no solitude, there's no silence, there's no relaxing from it. It's it's basically like you go to bed with the sounds of the sea and everything and it's just it's always around you. And and I think that's what plays into that idea that He's going mad because um, something that at first sounds unnatural is now all he can hear, you know, yeah. the, the fog horns and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Beautiful. By the way, um, it, I, I was reading a theory um, that you, you brought up, Yokomoto, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I just blew my mind. I was reading that we have the final shot. And you know what? If you haven't seen the film and you're the Prometheus. Yeah, the Prometheus theory. If you haven't seen the film and you're oh, that's another to, you haven't listened seen the po- you're, you're listening to the podcast, stop here. Spoilers ahead. But um, obviously, when when he's getting eaten out by the seagull, um, and that sounded sexual. I don't mean getting eaten out by the yeah, seagull. <laughs> no, we meant oh, it. Spoiler. spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But he's getting eaten alive. He's still alive by the seagulls. Yeah, his liver. Um, yeah, he's eating, eating out, out the liver. Seagull, yeah, the liver. Yeah. Um, uh, which again, another good callback to one of the monologues that Defoe was talking about—the song, the song of like I take out my liver and give it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if the birds in the sky were were liquor, I would take out my liver yeah. and give it to. Them. That was a good callback, by the way, which is cool. But no, um, there's a theory. If you know the Greek mytho- mythology story of Prometheus, uh, it's basically the whole thing is the Greek gods get, take away the the ability of use of fire from humans because they were misusing it, and tight you know the titan prometheus he he steals the fire back um and ultimately humans are pun- punished because punished. Of, you know he gets punished because of of what he's doing to the gods his disobedience to the gods um and when you see all of the all of the 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 seabirds um it's like all of the sailormen took away their power because they're being bad sailormen 
Um, so that that's why they're all around Pattinson's okay. character. Uh, so I, I thought and that the was punishment of Prometheus in the mythology is that uh, he is to be left alone uh, with a seagull, not, not a seagull, an eagle, an, an eagle, eagle. Uh, eating out his liver. Yeah, and then it would regenerate the next day, and it would continuously be eating it out. It's oh, the yeah. ground. So that, that's the whole. Yeah. Okay. And that's the myth that kind of like relates to the end of this. Um, and uh, speaking through that though, uh, I do have another thing because there's this w another like uh, big art reference that uh, oh, that the, the movie makes. The painting, right? Yeah, the painting. Yes. Uh, let me just pull it out oh, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in case of. Uh, so I'm putting it right now on, on YouTube yeah. if you guys yeah. are listening to this. Oh, it's the, 1904's Hypnosis. Hypnosis. Yeah, and it's so beautiful, especially in the movie. You you get to see this, uh, basically the recreation of this painting right. with the faux uh, naked ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, holding uh, shining light to Robert Pattinson. Right. And just that, that scene alone, I just... I just love how beautiful it's composed. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was definitely interesting. And I mean, it has to do with power and the light and the lighthouse and how the foe is the representation of that lighthouse. And, and he's, yeah, he holds the power, quote unquote, um, in this particular power struggle, power, power gain, right? Um, yeah. So look, this film explores a ton of psychoanalysis stuff to, to go into mythology, alcoholism, homoeroticism. Um, it, it, it really does go into a ton of things like that. But ultimately, uh, the storytelling for me did pretty great, uh, pretty great job of, of taking us into a world, world building in a very minimal level yeah. uh, without it being, you know, the, the world building we know now through CG. Um, but I thought it was a very good story that uh, art house pictures tend to lose money, not make a lot of money. <laughs> Um, and this film, at the end of the day, grossed ten million dollars and and did pretty good out of box office. So I, I like internationally or just domestic? Oh, just ten for ten million dollars. Um, wow. I think wow. you know Tuesday, ten yeah, million dollars. <laughs> so yeah, it didn't do much in terms of that. So I thought uh, I thought that was as long as it doubles its budget, it means that it was yeah, successful. Exactly. It was successful. So, yeah, yeah. I, something that we missed the last podcast, but I, I really wanted to ask for this one is uh, Castro, like on an acting front um there there's the question that we're gonna be implementing i'm gonna get better at but like if you had to play one of the two characters oh. uh, which would you play you know or what? the mermaid if you want to be the one that's both of them like i would i wouldn't mind taking any of those roles man okay so i can go patterson's subtlety or i could go over the top with uh the foes the foes you know i love to see his her and now as as an actor, what what challenges do you think you saw with the roles? Like like, what do you think was there? Like, huh? That's the first thing. Like, I don't know where the foes from. Where's the foe from? Uh, Originally, yeah. Does, what accent does he have? An accent, or is he from America? He's surprisingly no, no, he's South America. Africa. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> he's um. Is he? <laughs> no, he's American Italian. He's American Italian. He's, yeah, from, so, he's right? from he's from Wisconsin. See, so, I think that would be my the biggest challenge. Like trying to get the the they both they both the played, they both played interesting accents um by the way because a uh, Pattinson's British and he yeah. he has he a played British. somebody who's up north yeah yeah uh, Scandinavia yeah. Can, yeah um Nova Scotia Canada type of deal 
Um, and default- we're going to the actor thing. Uh, sorry. Uh, well, Castro, uh, what was your favorite acting piece? What is the one that you would say, like, you know what? I would take this and I would use this as as my acting class monologue or, or uh, stuff like that. When he when he finally loses it, when uh, uh, say you like my lobster boy. <laughs> was it that part? Love my when he, started, when he finally starts like revealing everything he hates about him. Uh, Defoe oh, or uh, Pattinson? Pattinson, almost at the end. Almost yeah, at the end. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's towards the, the end. Flood when, uh, scene, the flood yeah. scene. Yeah, it's, I, it's the day they wake up yeah. afterwards. Yeah. yeah, where he call he calls him a liar, and he says that you know, like everything that he's been telling yeah, him is like thoughts. I can't stand the when he finds the book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I would pick that part, <laughs> man. I think that just feel like. Com- puts everything together into his character. Like he just can't handle anymore. I've been trying to be nice to you because you're the boss, but I just found out that you're going to yeah. dock all my pay. You suck. Your farts suck. Your breath, <laughs> you know, all that. I love it, dude. I wish I could do that, you know? And I think I, uh, going back to like just the dialogue, because I think that's what's really impressive as far as the acting front. Defoe stays in it so well. I don't know if he needed practice as far as like a dialogue coach or something like well, that. But uh, like- that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. In terms of the dialect, um, Pattinson's accent is based on um, a very specific area of Maine, like the farming dialect of Maine. Like uh-huh. And Willem Dafoe's is uh, the jargon of Atlantic fishermen and sailors of the time. Sure. So I thought this was interesting. And, and in terms of the attention to detail, it says uh, Robert Eagers was like very specific and very precise to the point where he was, imagine this as an actor, Custer. He was selling them he was giving him instructions. Say the second sentence of your third line seventy five percent faster. Wow, that's that's a challenge that I'm willing to accept. Wait, what? what? So, so he basically tell them like, say the second sentence of your third line seventy five percent faster. That's something that Eager said on set to one of the actors. Michael's still like, what? what? Yeah, it, it's what's with this my, math equation? Now? My, my my brain can't go seventy five percent faster. It. Like, that's <laughs> so it's interesting. I thought. I mean, I, talk about attention to detail. I mean, yeah. um, but I mean, the pacing the it works so well because yeah, I mean, you listen to uh, the. Uh, fluidity of just like Defoe's conversation, the way he's able to throw out phrases. Dude, that monologue it's, in the lighting for two, for two actors, so... for two actors that are trying to get away from their high high Who profile scene, like high profile uh, roles. Yeah. Defoe with he's known as the Green Goblin, even though he's done an amazing ton of work other, on everything else, right? Um, and Pattinson obviously comes from the Twilight series that people just he wants to get away from it. Um, and I, I might add, he's going to go back into that world by playing Batman. I know. What, I, what, I mean, what happened, what happened again? <laughs> oh, because it's, mean, it's, 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 ba- it's a different Batman. You know, it's a different uh, approach to Batman. It's but the see, Batman. That's why I started liking his career because he got away from that and started taking yeah. like indie films and scripts yeah. that he wanted. To, but now he's going back to Batman. So yeah, I but mean, I do think. Hey man, money if talks. He's taking the Batman role because that, there's. I don't know. Uh, well, no, but also he he isn't one because he has all the money he can because yeah. of Twilight. That's the Twilight. So he does all. The, that's why he hasn't been wanting to do like another project like that. Right. But if he's doing Batman, I do believe that there's there was something in the script that got got him into actors. Actors do that all the time, dude. No, no. But I think actors do that all the time. If you pay close attention to the Hollywood kind of formula with things, mm-hmm. you'll notice that actors and Birdman tackles this this particular thing so much. But um, actors, I'll, I'll give you an example. My, I listened to a podcast the other day with Matthew McConaughey said, hey, man, I did. I was becoming the rom-com guy and people were making fun of me. And, and they told me, um, 
yeah, you're the rom-com guy. And he was like, yeah, but those rom-coms are paying for my house on the beach that I'm running shirtless exactly. on. Yeah. He's like, so I'm going to keep being that guy. But he says, I stopped doing the rom-coms. Like I made an active choice because I was becoming only the mo- the rom-com guy. Like I can't perform anywhere else. I was just the rom-com guy. And he says what in the story that he turned down $14.5 million of one of the one of the films, a particular film, they kept bumping his pay grade up. And he was like, no. And he took he paid the price. He wasn't in a film for like two years. And then Dallas Buyers Club came along and that that made McConaughey we know now. No, he paid the price because uh, studios didn't want to pick him up for like six months. He didn't have just because. He didn't have his his choice of rom com films anymore. Like nobody wanted to pick you him. You know up that kind of reminds me of Josh Hartnett. Yeah, he, he kind of didn't want to be in the spotlight anymore, and he lost yeah. all the connections. With so I think Pattinson. Um, with all due respect to everybody, man, like I think I think actors have a need to stay in the spotlight so that they can just keep getting casted. At the end of the day, yeah. So when you've done the Twilight thing and then you stepped away and did a ton of indies, and then now it's like, oh, you know what? I don't want people to forget about me on the big front. I'm going to get this Batman movie. Uh, that's my theory, by the way. I'm yeah, not no, saying, no, which it makes sense. It's just my think, theory is like you catapult yourself so that the next five years are successful in terms of getting business, you know? Well, well you would think that with the Twilight, he already has that. Like, well, already- what I think is that also um, like if it, think about the franchise, especially after Joker and what that puts you in like that position yeah. as an actor, say, like because Joaquin Phoenix just got like a best actor award Coming yeah, the best of, of like, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, yeah and I think I think that that shows right now, at least on a social front and on a like a producer front, that somebody who goes into one of those films, you don't have to disregard them anymore. That's, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's why actor, it you know? pisses me off, dude. It pisses right. me off when people talk about actors that way. And I and I use the MCU as an example because Robert Downey Jr. is one of the best actors. Period. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know his other work, but beyond, even as Tony Stark, he really dove into that role I can't see anybody else um chadwick boseman the late great chadwick boseman um a don um don Cheadle. i mean you have a plethora of amazing actors Absolutely. yeah they're chosen in these roles for a reason chris pratt was was arrested development chris pratt and then he became <laughs> yeah. chris pratt by playing um star lord you know so I, I think it's you're you're right it's utter bullshit and i think guys like matthew vaughn when he did kick ass and when you saw films like the Watchmen, it, it opened the doors up for the superhero movies. And and that's a discussion for another day, but yeah. actors, it, you're right. The low actors um, have the opportunity to play these great, juicy, great roles. That's how the whole thing started. You think about blade and you think about Wesley Snipes and you think about the Toro's blade too. Um, it was an amazing film with amazing performance and a juicy character. And, and who wouldn't want to play a role like that? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I think it's interesting to, to and think. I think I think if like I was Patterson yeah, going into that, you know, I could go and jump into this script because I think for one, it's going to show an acting ability, and and this seems like it's taking a different take on like Bruce yeah. Wayne and all that. Yeah. And then also, you know, it opens you up to uh, the other type of avenues that are out there. Like, you know, yeah. if you want to keep doing that whole uh, like MCU example, if you want to keep doing this franchise, this series, and let that kind of be the next thing you're known for, then. And you know, it's, 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 to work out. it's also a play for directors, by the way. That's what happened with Todd Phillips. You know, Todd Phillips was known as the comedy guy. And then he did the Joker. Well, he did War Dogs and then he did the Joker. And then he became like, oh, man, this is a guy to respect him, uh, yeah. for other films, not just comedies. Yeah. Um, to the point where De Niro and Scorsese got involved in the Joker early on in its development because there they saw this both. as a 
they saw this as, no they saw it as a gritty new york story of a comedian that comedian gone wrong so to speak right yeah. so and that's what king of comedy really was by the way so i think um I think it's interesting for directors. Directors are starting to play into that role. John Favreau is one of my favorite directors of all time. I love him. I love his work. I love his indie work specifically, like Swingers and um, Chef is one of my all-time favorite films. Um, but he he single-handedly created the MCU with Iron Man. That was that was all him. Yeah, the first one was the best. Yeah. <laughs> so John Favreau like gets thrown into like oh he's doing big Disney pictures now because he did the Jungle Book and he did the new Lion King. But I think directors are getting thrown into like, oh, he's a superhero guy. But through through things like the Joker, like the Lao says, now can get a little more respect. So I think that's really cool. Um, really cool. That's true. I just think it's a little bit tricky for him since he kind of wanted to get out, but now he's kind of jumping back just, in. But I get it. It must have been a good script. For but him. think about this though. He did the Lighthouse right before. The Lighthouse isn't an old picture. It's a twenty. It's twenty nineteen. You know. So he did that right before jumping into the Batman. Um, and uh, that, uh, I mean, that's that's smart, man. I think Pattinson's got his head on the shoulders. I think that's no, another it. film that he did with A24 <laughs> when I was looking at some of like, the films coming uh, before The Lighthouse. Good Times, um, right? Uh, no, it's the one, I don't think it's Good Times. Uh, it's where he went into high space. Times? Uh, I don't... Yeah. The sure. Safety Brothers one, or? Um, no. It was, it was also from A24. Uh, it was Patterson. Um, it was going into space and basically. Oh, High Life. High Life, yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that one. Yeah, I haven't I seen that one either. But when you look but into like, it, that one also looks like a more serious role. It, it, it's mm. that kind of. It's like going mad, but in space because basically humans are weeded out, and there's these group of people that are kind of sent out there, and it's like if they can make humanity work somewhere else, that's great. And if they can't, well, then they're just on a ship to die, and they have to mm. kind of settle with that. So you yeah. you saw Patterson kind of breaking into those roles, and, and by the way. I haven't seen I haven't seen Tenet. I haven't seen The Devil all the time. Those are two new films that Pattinson's a part of, and a very big role with. Uh, yeah. I, I know he did it with Tom Holland, um, Devil all the time, and I heard it was a great performance on both films. I haven't seen Tenet either, but the one um, I saw before, like after Twilight, is Remember Me. But I don't know. I don't. Yeah, and he wasn't that bad in that. Dude, that's the first and time. And like, also, hey, Water for Elephants. Water for Elephants. Yeah. I was gonna say my my wife she she introduced that film to me. My thought process was. Ah, it's the Twilight guy. I don't want to watch yeah. it. And we watched it. and I was like, "Oh, damn! He's he's oh, pretty he damn talented. He was yeah. pretty good." Yeah, Water for Elephants was a good film. It was and good. he also did the David Cronenberg Cosmopolis. Okay, I'm you know sorry. what, man? Cronenberg he disappointed me with the last film I saw of his. I saw Maps to the Stars, which uh, Pattinson ha- also has a role in. It was so disappointing to me, man. I, 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 I Cronenberg's on my <laughs> bad list right now. He's on my bad list. You know which one disappoint you? <laughs> which one? <laughs> the Cable Guy. <laughs> I prefer so the good. what you have right let's under your cable. Yeah, I prefer right what out you have right under. Oh well, of course, man. Out of time, the first one, second one, third one. <laughs> third one's my favorite, by the way. Anyways, second. I think it's time. It's about that time, the uh, Yokomoto. Ooh, what time is it, Yokomoto? <laughs> oh, well, it's about that time. Oh, well, welcome to the Tower Crown. In case of you don't know, <laughs> well, the Tower know. Crown is, is a debate show where the debaters don't always know exactly what they're going to be debating for. Now, so for, for this last one, since, we're gonna talk, since we talked about the lighthouse and people going mad, we put up a poll about movies that are about going insane. So, so on Facebook, we put up a poll with these four movies. 
Uh, let, me, let me put them out. Did you put and this is so one one was the Babadook. The Babadook. Babadook. Eh. <laughs> then it was Black Swan. Black Swain. Black Swain. <laughs> the Shining. Give me the Shining. Bat. Give me the bat. And the Joker. More like the 2019 one. I like the Joker. And so y'all, y'all voted, and the two that came up were Black mm. Swan against the Shining. The Black Shining. The Black Shining. <laughs> I gotta tell you guys, man. I, you know. I think for this particular, and it's going to sound weird, for this particular um, going insane topic, I'm going to have to side with Black Swan. And I'm going to have to side with The yes. Shining because you'd be a fool to choose anything the else. Shining is the definition. I know, I know, I know. Okay, Castro, I think, I think it's time. You're going to have to moderate. Right. You're going to have to listen to us. And I, I'm... Okay, I think, I'll do oh, the moderator. You're ready. Castro will be the moderator? Okay. Okay, I'll... I'll, I'll help you out, Carlos, whenever you want. I'm All right, I, I, I'm siding with Black Swan on this particular one because here's here's the thing. Who's going first? Who's going first? Black Swan? Whoever you want, yeah. Take Whoever. it away. I think the shiny. Okay. The shiny. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Real quick, real quick. Uh, yes. I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, the definition is who went more insane. I think that's what we're going to measure this scale on, right? Right. Or, or what are we – What? Well, that's Castro, not like, fair. Nobody in Black Swan uh, killed anybody. Whatever, I mean, whatever the moderator needs, that's feels like it, that that his vote was okay. Whatever you need, Castro, you tell us. Castro, okay? what are, what do we what do what's the uh, point system? Also, what are we, also, also, best also, film, more insane. Uh, no, 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 but the, it says best going insane scene. Best Look, going insane hey, scene. Oh shit! No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, we got it. Okay. 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 Best one insane movie. Okay. God. Making me on the quick. Okay. I, I just look. I think it's interesting. You can moderate it however you want, guys. That's. We'll leave that up to you. But I. Yeah. I, well, I. I'm already biased. Cause, but all right. Yeah, you are already biased. Uh, yeah, everybody, execution. Everybody should be biased. Oh. I mean, look. It's Kubrick in his prime. It's it's the Shining is, is Aronofsky at his prime. It it is Aronofsky at his prime. Definition of psychology. Look, you know what the thing is? I'm not I'm not a big Aronofsky fan. He's there's very little films where I, I like this. Again, it's not my cup of tea. Oh, I love him. I I know you do. I know it's your <laughs> cup of tea. But I mean, you're talking about like Requiem, Requiem for a Dream and Noah and Mother. Um, obviously, Castro, you saw Mother. The wrestler. Uh, the, re- the wrestler for oh, me I was was a good Aronofsky film. But anyways, okay. I'm trying to make a case for Black Swan. I think that this... Right, so let's step into Black Swan then. Aronofsky has the ability, if you saw Requiem for a Dream, by the way, um, Aronofsky has this ability to throw you into this... You're going insane with the character. And The Shining doesn't do that for me. I'm not going insane with, you know, with Jack, Jack? Nicholson's character. I'm not going insane with him. I'm witnessing him going insane. And with Black Swan, I'm thrown into it. I'm in there. I'm 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 thrown into Natalie Portman's um, desperation, um, and the, by the way, Mila Kunis's performance uh, was actually pretty damn great in this film. Um, it's it's a it's a, a stone's throw. People would argue that it's a stone's throw from the '70s show. I don't think so. Um, I think it's it's much more distance than that. She did fantastic as the quote unquote the villain, the the one that brings this character down. Cool. Um, Mila Kunis's his portrayal here was fantastic. Um, I think Aronofsky's directing style is very clear in this picture. I think it, the contrast between beauty and psychological mayhem 
is is the mise-en-scene for that is just perfect, man, because you're talking about a beautiful um, ballet individual, but then you're seeing this character go insane. Uh, the club scene in particular is the scene I'd want to kind of put as my my proof. Uh, the club scene in Black Swan where Mila Kunis takes her to the club and um, you see her, you witness her going insane in that scene. You witness her going on uneasy the uneasiness of of natalie portman's character for that film um so yeah that's kind of my opening argument i think that this film takes you into almost like a pov uh where the shining it's fantastic okay. but it doesn't take me in okay i'm ready to throw my myself in the what is it the ring yeah so all right i i know that you might say that in this in your case it brought you into the character and it brought you into like, you know, her, you're going insane with the kind of film and the narrative and all that. Yeah. I think the shining was trying to be, well, it's a horror film and it was trying to do what every great horror film does, which is scare you. And the way it does that mm-hmm. is that it doesn't bring you into Jack Nicholson's character, but it brings you into the overlook hotel. And even with yeah, the, the, yeah. the, the modern innovation of the steady cam and having to track very organically the characters moving through this very real space you're kind of put into their position you're able to see um danny and uh his his wife they're kind of trapped with him and it's it's like they have this care for him being like the family member but then you're seeing how at the end of the day even though it's a big hotel they can't escape him and then it's also making it scarier by showing you just how real this all is for him that that this is talking to him him talking to the bartender him going into the bathroom him experiencing this where then you're getting this sense of hopelessness for whoever else is going to be inside the hotel because i i read the shining more fantasy for me so you like the new one the i haven't seen i haven't seen doctors pretty great i haven't seen doctor sleep yeah I heard yeah, it was. I was. I heard it was pretty great too. Like for oh, the yeah. Shining fans, I heard it was pretty great. I haven't seen it. It was a pleasant um, sequel. But I think. Yeah. I think that. Uh, I heard Obi Wan did pretty good. Um, I. I find the Shining more of a more of a, and I love the, that about the Shining. I love that it's it's a storybook. Haha. <laughs> no no pun on storybook, but I I like that it's a storybook and I like that it's a story, but. That's what it does for me. It takes me into like, oh man, is this really happening? Or, you know, um, it takes me into the fantasy side. Um, and the argument here is who did you witness going crazy? Like, who did we feel going crazier? Um, so to me, the fantasy side is like, well, that's that's pretty awesome to witness and to be thrown into that world and witness this character. But if you know anything about Matthew Libatech, you're talking about camera movement. The law. Matthew Libatech was a cinematographer for Black Swan, and he's he's pretty much Aronofsky's go-to cinematographer. Um, if you know anything about his camera movement, he specializes in throwing you into a world. Um, one of the one most impactful cinematography uh, instances for him, for me, was uh, A Star Is Born. Um, the camera work in A Star Is Born is fucking amazing, yeah. dude. And and. Libatech is a go- you give all the credit to him. Um, I mean, he worked with with F. Gary Gray on Shredded a Comp, and he did it a, a, of, a, a bunch of stuff. But um, Libatech's work alone, like you really do see uh, Libatech's camera work 
throw you into this world. I mean, make you part but, of this world. I don't know that the shiny. No, that. but even when we talk about Kubrick, and we've talked about it before with 2001: Space Odyssey, and yeah. we're talking about it with The Shining, it's defining that ability in in cinema it's that innovation of using the camera in that way you know Kubrick Kubrick did that for me in Full Metal Jacket he didn't do that for me in The Shining he did that for me in Full Metal Jacket I was thrown into that world more I was I was a private in that army I I got to witness you know um uh um, but are you know you're you're measuring the success by how much this is making you a part of that and and i'm measuring it by how effectively it was able to show you the bleakness of the scenario of danny and his mother and how they're just trapped within this world that you know i I hate to use this argument but his mother is and 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 stephen king has said this many times i hate to use this argument but she's just used as a scream queen and we don't really we don't really get to see what what um, she's used as the scream queen for this horror picture. Um, we don't we don't we're not so going through the that. journey with her. We're not going through the journey with her. She's with the used- denial. My bad. My bad. My bad. I'm away. I'm out. <laughs> when it comes to the psychological aspect of it natalie portman's character as a female character okay, has depth has depth and layers and has well that's because she's the main character has a journey yeah but not just her even mila kunis's character who's a supporting character and the villain um has depth and layers and they're strong women and strong characters and in the shining she's not a strong woman by any means um, uh, by any argument and, and it's she's... just it's such a well-paced film though i mean it's something that you can already see there being this initial tension with jack's character that that even before coming here there's something that's not fully resolved about him making him vulnerable to everything that's going to happen so, like uh sequentially later or uh just sequentially later but then yeah. it, it builds on that. Even even the little details of Kubrick wanting to use red as a primary color, that yep. the more it's introduced, the more Jack's being covered I'm, and enveloped I'm, by this kind of madness. I'm gonna you know? play dev- I'm gonna play devil's advocate and and argue that because of what we know of Jack Nicholson and his acting abilities and, and the roles he's played behind the scenes for that he's one. He's kinda one. you kinda go into this movie thinking he's crazy to begin with. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so you don't see a progression of craziness and that's not Kubrick's fault that's casting Jack Nicholson's fault. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I that's think one that, of the reasons why Stephen King hated the movie. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, Stephen King yeah. hated yeah. The Shining. Yeah. He hated He's The Shining. He's gone on record to say that, dude. Yeah. He hated The Shining for for those two primary reasons because the 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 dynamic of of Jack's character was in it wasn't it wasn't a progression and number two he hated that the wife the mother Ending. that 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 she was a scream queen that she didn't have a, in the I book she has out. more of a purpose in the book she has more of a stronger um um prerogative like a stronger uh, uh essence. essence but in the movie she's just a scream queen and stephen king hated that he hated the movie mm. for that uh, and i love that in ready player one it's the work that the uh, the creator hated you know oh yeah yeah so that's what it was. But um, yeah, I just think that casting Jack Nicholson, it, I mean, I went into the movie. But thinking, I mean, you can also, you can see like, you know, and, and it goes back to that whole idea of like red being the color to represent madness. You can yeah. see how the environment kind of trickles in and starts to permeate him throughout. I'll have the to, I have to argue that because we just saw a black know. and white film where it didn't need to show me any red to show me madness. But when you yeah, do- but we had a film that used 
Oh, okay. It used a film stock that doesn't recognize red to show red being a darker element within the characters. <laughs> that that used red. It it's just black. used no, no. It used red as for negative space. You know. Okay, Yokomoto, help me out, man. What am I missing? I'm sorry, the low, but no. You're a dick. Okay. You're not. So the best thing of uh, talking about progression. Perfection is one of uh, the seek. The oh, search for perfection that. is one of the things that can actually show you the progression of a character. Yeah. It's uh, because of her. Uh, you see this innocence, the innocence of uh, Natalie Portman in this. And she just wants to be like, she just wants to be the, the one true dancer. And then, although she gets the audition, uh, she, she nails the part. She's still told, you know what? You're not still not quite there. You're not good enough. So the <laughs> fact that she is uh, like, she's like, you know what? No, uh, you're not going to tell me that. I got to do it. But she's still saying, no, no. And, and I think it's something I'm that as, as, as artists, we can all relate to because you're, you're always wanting to be recognized for your work. But I think when you, okay, going back to The Shining, another <laughs> aspect that plays into the film that makes it a horror and makes it a good horror is showing the repercussions that madness or letting something kind of go too far has on everybody else. It's Jack Nicholson's madness and his descent into that that starts to create this unease within the hotel, within the family. And it's the fact that it's unchecked and every time that, you know, um, the, the wife tries to check on him or tries to like intervene and she's powerless or she decides to back away to like prevent an argument and mm -hmm. lets that kind of madness grow. It gets to the point where then he just becomes this murderer who, who needs to go and correct the family. And I think showing not only the descent into madness, but the effect it has on everybody else and the fear that builds up from not being able to control it once it is there. I think that's what makes The Shining just an effective film at the very end, you know? Yeah, okay. but but we're um, talking about, you're talking about wait, wait, using wait. those those elements, Delau, I'm sorry, Yokomoto, those elements as an effective way to to tell a horror film, no, to but tell I'm, a horror I'm, story. I'm saying that madness and oh, the descent into no, the descent into madness for a character, I think, can do more than just watching a film and it being like, oh, the person went crazy and the person died and that that's yeah, it. Yeah, but I There's think... There's more layers that can come out of that, which The Shining did. It played much, with much, the idea of... It much, played with the idea like, of madness coming out through the person, the way it kind of affects the rest of the family, the way it affects an environment. It, it played with these themes as opposed to it just being an isolated incident with a character. Well, much, much like one of your favorite films, Allah, or, or one of your favorite films of all time, much like Birdman, the interpretation of him jumping out the window is the exact, almost like mirror of Black Swan and her jumping at the end. You know, it's it's this descent into madness where this is the only way I'm going to get my glory. And this is the only way I'm going to get my sanity is by not existing and by 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 making my mark on this stage that no one can ever take away. That's that's well, madness. I no, mean, you're, you're and talking, the, you're... the drum sequence from Whiplash, the ending sequence of Whiplash also resembles this like yeah. total given into uh, this insanity that the world has created for you. Yeah, well, that you're talking about from that... you, and you just want to give everything to them, but yeah. You but it's yourself. still not good enough. Yeah, you you're talking yourself. about, I think, a key element of like these films that have a character who descends into madness, like like the Joker, like everybody else. That pinnacle moment when they just kind of give in to whatever that feeling is and give in to this, this raw feeling that at all costs, whatever the objective is at that time needs to be done. 
and this film has that. It has the the climax of Jack going in, having to murder family, having to correct them, and he's given in. He he's done what every other film that mm-hmm. has a person who descends into madness does. This is just something that it it's not only dealing with him diving into madness and what this is going to do for his character as a father figure, as a writer, as as somebody more than just um like Jack the murderer. It's showing how it affects everybody else. It's showing that his madness is this unstoppable <clears throat> evil force that if it wasn't for Danny knowing the layouts of the maze and knowing how to like play into his weaknesses because he was always cooped up inside the hotel that that madness wouldn't have been stopped he would have killed them and then he would have stayed in that environment I think, but I think another argument um, in terms of the fields I mean Jack's a writer right ultimately he's he has to kind of go into his mind about stuff like this and Natalie Portman's character even takes the, even her profession takes a physical toll that could just descend you more into madness because you know how much weight you have to lose to become a ballerina, and and how many how many people Being an get, obsession. Yeah, it's an obsession, obsession. And, and it becomes unhealthy. You know, they they become bulimic or anorexic, and just to just to maintain their status, just to maintain their stature, uh, even the physical toll. Uh, plays a huge role in, in Natalie Portman because in preparation she had to she had to lose I think twenty pounds more just to look like a ballerina, uh, and, and Natalie Portman's pretty skinny. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, was so, I mean her training just to go into this film and give this performance is is insane. Like she had to thankfully not go Heath Ledger insane, but um, and I mean that in the respectful way. I mean that in the respectful way, but um, thankfully I think this is one of those roles that could throw you in there. And I do think Jack Nicholson is just fucking crazy by nature, and that doesn't affect him. You know, he once they yell cut, he's back to Jack. And I think Natalie Portman probably struggled a little bit with this character just because of how insane she had to go into that mentality to portray it. So I think that's I mean, something that completely there, become also, a different person. There's also something about the script work of The Shining and the, the way <laughs> the dialogue's constructed that you know even with the pacing, even if you were to have other people play the the same role and say the same dialogue, you can see those kind of pinnacle moments that, yeah, I mean, Jack Nicholson is just a master at at madness and anger and playing the different shades of that. But it also shows how the script was made in a way to show these breaking points within the characters, (laughs) these breaking points within people feeling that kind of like loss of control. Here's my here's of- my argument with that. Here's my argument with that. I think you're right. I think The Shining does do that. But when think about Uncut Gems for a minute. It's two and a half hours of going crazy. That probably should have been in the Tower Crown too, by the way. Um, of going crazy um, by witnessing everything that's going on, right? And it makes you feel that anxiety for these two and a half hours with no breaks. And I think Black Swan does a better job at that than The Shining. With The Shining, there's breaks and kind of minute moments of like, all right, this just happened, cut here, let's go on to the next thing. This just happened, cut here, let's go on to the next thing. And and Black Swan is just a fucking a mind fuck, really. And it it you feel that way as as a as an audience member. You feel like, oh man, like what's gonna happen to her? Like what the hell is she? Is she gonna punch this girl? Is she gonna kill her? Is she gonna plan the murder? Like you you start to feel that anxiety yourself. Um, without pause, without breaks, without, you know, uh, moments like that. So I think that's, I mean, and talk that's, about going insane. That's how insanity, I think, probably feels is there's no stopping this. I'm going crazy. But when you have moments of reflection, then that makes you calm down a little bit. But, but. isn't there something that's almost more realistic in The Shining mm-hmm. with somebody who's basically going mad as a family member and this complacency that everybody's like, 
yeah but at the end of the day it's dad like like dad's not going to hurt us the the, my Mm -hmm. husband says he's quit drinking he's better now and seeing that that kind of grows to a point where then it is unstoppable i'd argue that that that's less real I'd argue that that's less real. No, I think I think it's more real, and it shows the the fear behind it because it's something that, with complacency, it can mm. continue to grow, and then after that, it's this unstoppable force. And it's not, it's not feeling like, oh man, this person looks like they're really losing it. Oh man, this person, I, I should mm-hmm. stop them. It's something that's subtle. It's anger that builds up. It just reaches an, a point where then Jack breaks. Yeah, And there's nothing that can be done about it. You can't talk to him or anything. It just goes from thinking that everything's fine to then the next day he has an ax at me and he has to kill me and there's nothing I can do to change his prerogative. Yeah, but to me that, that sounds about as logical as, as um, it may be supernatural, who knows, right? But it sounds about as logical as like Abraham killing Isaac you know, from the Bible. Um, yeah, God told me to do it and I'm going to kill my son, but then God stopped me. That's I supernatural. Think, I, I wanna, That's I not say Black realistic, Swan's, you know. Black Swan's more theatrical about it. You're you're feeling the insanity. I I feel that like that's how it is. But the I mean, shining is more theatrical. It's more dramatic. It's more open, and and Black Swan is more intimate. I, I'd argue the Black Swan is much more intimate than The Shining. The I Shining feel, is much more of a bigger picture. You know, it shows you so much more. It doesn't just go into that one little thing that oh, you know, uh, that seeking perfection drives you insane. It goes into First off, the passion of writing. It goes into the environment around you. It goes into the struggle of family. It goes into... I'd argue that OCD is is a very real thing. And OCD is is all about seeking perfection, right? OCD is all about seeking perfection and seeking... uh, a routine of ways to that can't be broken and can't be disrupted. And I think that the OCD kind of approach is more realistic. So to seek perfection is much more nerve wracking than, well, there was a light switch that was turned on because of this hotel. And now I'm going crazy. Oh, he's having, he has to provide for his family. That's why he took a job that's, he took a job that he didn't know but he took a job that he didn't know was going to drive him crazy. This was an active no, choice. There, there, there's some, there's, okay. Okay. indications that he was that he was trying to leave something he was trying to leave this this cozy family life because he wanted to just dive into his work mm-hmm. and he was at his most vulnerable state when the hotel took control of him you know with, with all due respect i mean just talking about a writer as a writer right as a writer i have a friend that did the same thing he went away to he rented a, a beach house basically for two weeks and decided to finish his script because otherwise he wasn't going to be able to do it. And um, I'd argue that most writers do that, take that approach. Like most writers take the approach of like, I got to lock myself in a hotel room until I'm done. Um, And I don't know if that's enough of a reason for me to like, uh, he's going crazy, but that's my closing argument. Um, I just think that The Shining didn't just play with the idea of him going mad. It played with the <laughs> elements of how that affects others. It played in with the idea of it could happen because of your passions. It could happen because of the environment. It could happen because of the responsibilities. That It's not just an isolated thing. I think it allowed, if you wanted to, you could view it from all these different lenses I told you, and you could find plenty of justifications throughout the film on why that works, you know? And that's my closing I, okay. argument. That's my closing argument. All right. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm just gonna do my my last one. And then, okay, no, uh, no, you can't. Castro, what the hell? I don't know you. This is up to you, man. Because I really, I would give it to both of them right now. So being, I, I will like give it. Writing, but, do I get? Do I get one more chance? No, wait, wait. Just tell you. Ask a question. 
Now, the biggest point here to tell you which is the better one is the last line from the movie. Black Swan lets you know <laughs> this was perfect. Yes, yes, they reached it. Yes, thank you, Yokomoto. Okay, Castro, th- throw a question okay. so that way it can help you out. Is it who went, cra- who's, who went crazier? Have we, have we ever had a draw? For, for hey, that's what I'm leaning towards. I almost had a draw last but, time. Okay. Look, I think the only thing that takes <clears throat> Shining takes it is because it's not exclusive just to her. It, it's 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 exclusive to his whole family. You know. It, but his family's not going crazy. No, no. But they're the, they're seeing that he's going crazy, and he's. Well, we're talking about who's going crazy. That's why, <laughs> that's why you're if, if you're talking about who's going like crazy, I think. It, it feels okay. I'll say it feels kind of like a draw, but I mean, there, there's does. something about Jack's character going insane to the point that really there's nothing that can stop him. That he goes from being a father to a monster. Okay, here's here's my argument. Here's You're, my closing argument. I, 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 I promise you, I'm done after this. I think the you guys are just ganging up on me. That's what that. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the status uh, in cinema and cinema appreciation, cinema history of The Shining, uh, clouds everybody's judgment. I what? think no no yeah, no no I, I do, I do. no 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 I think that I think it clouds everybody's judgment because it's a legendary film just like when I was and arguing against 2001 yeah I just like you know when we were arguing against 2001 I think that the status maybe clouds the fact that because it is a better movie I'm not arguing that it's not a better movie it is a better movie but, I Carlos. <laughs> It's, I'm, I'm it's, not, it it's is a better fun, film. It's I'm fundamental. Gonna... It's something that if you wanted to, you could take one of those pieces, like the environment making you in Spain or your passion and all that, and then more films are able to play off of that later on, you know? I just they, always... They could, they could dive into any one of those elements that. and it could I work for them. I just always the judge that, that, that effect as an audience member, how I'm feeling, how this film makes me feel. So if I can relate to the character and they make me feel exactly how the character's feeling, you've done your job for me. And I think there's different instances in film where they do that. In this particular film, I think that's we're arguing. If I were in the shoes of each character, I'd go crazier in Portman's so between position. Between perfection and isolation. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which one drive you more mad? I just feel that if you look at The Shining, you could say, wow, that film made me feel uneasier. It scared me, especially like the, the interpretations <laughs> of audiences yeah. who first watch it. And then if you tackle any reason for why it made you feel that way, that you could find justifications for those different areas, the justification of isolation, family, his passion, and all that kind of stuff driving him insane. In the second one, they, they basically spell out why what happened happened, but mm-hmm. without that one, without that one, if you, if you watch the, just the first one and there's no other context around you, yeah, it also adds in that kind of fear of the unknown, and it makes it really effective at every time so you try to. The sequel destroyed the shining. It didn't so. destroy the shining. It didn't destroy the shining. It tried to give a name to <laughs> the whole it. But going it, insane thing. No, but when you're talking about a horror film, I think even Eric Sanchez and Eric liked Doctor Sleep as a horror fan. He'd argue that he wanted Jack to just go insane because Jack's going insane, uh, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just what the hotel is causing. Yeah. And and the sequel, from what I understand, justifies all these actions and justifies. It, it doesn't justify the actions. It just shows the power that kind once of you're insane, you're you're trapped. That yeah. that yeah. like. By the way, another no Stephen King yeah. hit. By the way, Doctor Sleep, the book was a big hit when it came out. 
And actually, um, Stephen King actually really liked. And he really liked liked actually the, the, the movie. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry, Castro. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta choose. Okay. Bro. Mine has naked ladies. Just saying that. <laughs> yeah, naked oh, ladies. Oh no, hell no! the lesbian scene. No. <laughs> yeah, we have a lesbian scene with two of the hottest actresses in Hollywood. Huh? And going down. <laughs> mine has one of the scariest naked women in in Hollywood history. I love Russian women, dude. Okay, the love Russian the woman. exactly. Mila Kunis, Russian. The Austin, our God, say anything to me, dude. By by any chance, did you were you kind of like attuned about what the debate was going? Do you have an opinion? Because it, it appears that our moderator is kind of like split between. Yeah, man. I was. I came in with shiny. Most of us are. I think most of us are. And it just. I'll... What's up? Okay. Do you have? Well, no, okay. Have... Just let me know. Let, send me a message or anything. And I'll, meanwhile, I'll, I'll put in the winner. Any closing arguments or anything like that? I, I think I've made my point. Um, I think Carlos yeah. Harris All right. <laughs> I got the vote in. Do I win? <laughs> and here it is. You ready, guys? No, you know what? Hold on. I already know. Next one. <laughs> yes. yes. Not even that. Yes. Castro, what were you going to go with? <laughs> I put a draw, man. You, you guys have draw. a good point. Yeah, yeah that's why I asked Austin. I couldn't pick The Shining because I like The Shining. But you, you had some good points for The Swan, and I would have to see The Swan again. That's why I'm like... I think, like, I, I feel that <laughs> The Swan deserves the, the win. The only be The Swan, yeah, not even Black Swan. The, 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 the crappy remake yeah. um, with uh, Betty White. Uh, yeah, no, like... <laughs> I, I feel like it, I feel like it works because when you look at a lot of Kubrick's films, it's not a lot of people say like, oh, it's the best thing of all time. But I feel like it did a really good job as being a fundamental film, like something that if you were to take inspiration from, you could find elements that work really well and then for take the that. And, yeah, for The Shining. If you, if you look at The Shining, you can find elements that work really well. And then as time progressed, technology progressed, it just got better, you know? True. But, like, with the remasters, still... you mean? Or... No, not with the remasters. Oh. I mean, like, if you look at uh, things like... like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, look, The Shining is going to age well. The Shining yeah. will always age well. Black Swan's not going to age well. <laughs> yeah. What do you no. mean? Black Swan's going to age perfectly. No, I was going to say... Because in the end... Because the story is still there. It's, uh, it's I mean, it's one of Aronofsky's best. It's one of Aronofsky's best. In fact, I think it nominated, got nominated for an Oscar. I do think it's his best. Uh, yeah. I well, it got Best Picture nomination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It got I mean, home. got the Best Actress. I mean, win. you know, like I, I'm particular because I I like looking into like steady cam work and the development of that kind yeah. of art artistic tool. You could say, especially in filmmaking, and I just felt that when you look at what it did for The Shining and and the a the way they were able to use that tool, and then the yeah. way they're able to use that tool now especially with films like Birdman and I mean, Black Swan and all that, you can see that the development just got so much. It, it's done so much <clears throat> yeah, for yeah, cinema yeah. that, that, uh, I mean, but that's Kubrick's almost like tagline, right? Like I'm going to yeah, break like, the form. I'm going to improve the, the art form. And that's just, yeah, Kubrick, and, you know, it's Kubrick. just, that's, that's it. You know, it's with that note, well, I think, um, I think it's very deserving. Um, but we're gonna not have just to call because it. yeah, we're going to have to call it. I think we're, we're approaching two hours here, which was a beautiful discussion guys. Yes. You know what I think it's insane? That we're that ending right now? Thinks that we're Goodbye. actually going to talk about the cable guy. <laughs> wow. That is pretty insane. <laughs> Why'd you gotta... No, no, I think you guys remember we did rec- we did do that episode. I just didn't record it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Last month to do it. 
<laughs> guys i think uh this discussion on the lighthouse and um the lighthouse was was fantastic and talking about these two great films uh aronofsky's black swan and kubrick's the shining which respectively will probably have their own episodes on this podcast at some point um the lighthouse was a great picture uh it showed it's one again it's one of those films that shows me art house is still respectable and still alive in cinema today and a24 is doing amazing things and bringing these films to light so um great performances great overall conversation um i want to thank everybody for being here today um do you guys have any final thoughts on anything uh don't kill seagulls and don't go outside COVID's still very real yes yeah, that juju is so real guys so yeah on that note guys please um stay safe wear a mask yes stay indoors and keep listening in we're trying to do as much content on the watchtower podcast so if you guys want to suggest a film to us you guys want to want to come on and discuss a film uh that maybe we're not seeing or we're not paying attention to please send us a message um comment down here if you're on facebook or youtube or send us a message about the spotify apple podcast google podcast please keep sharing the podcast uh with your fellow cinema lovers we thank you all for tuning in to the watchtower podcast and we'll see you next time Thank you.